This is the SFF Audio Podcast. Today's podcast is a reading of The Birthmark by Nathaniel Hawthorne. It's read by Fred Heimbaugh. It runs 50 minutes, and we will be discussing it afterwards. The Birthmark by Nathaniel Hawthorne Read by Fred Heimbaugh In the latter part of the last century, there lived a man of science, an eminent proficient in every branch of natural philosophy, who not long before our story opens had made experience of a spiritual affinity more attractive than any chemical one. He had left his laboratory to the care of an assistant, cleared his fine countenance from the furnace smoke, washed the stain of acids from his fingers, and persuaded a beautiful woman to become his wife. In those days, when the comparatively recent discovery of electricity and other kindred mysteries of nature seemed to open paths into the region of miracle, it was not unusual for the love of science to rival the love of woman in its depth and absorbing energy. The higher intellect, the imagination, the spirit, and even the heart might all find their congenial ailment in pursuits which, as some of their ardent votaries believed, would ascend from one step of powerful intelligence to another until the philosopher should lay his hand on the secret of creative force, and perhaps make new worlds for himself. We know not whether Aylmer possessed this degree of faith in man's ultimate control over nature. He had devoted himself, however, too unreservedly to scientific studies, ever to be weaned from them by any second passion. His love for his young wife might prove the stronger of the two, but it could only be by intertwining itself with his love of science and uniting the strength of the latter to his own. Such a union accordingly took place and was attended with truly remarkable consequences and a deeply impressive moral. One day, very soon after their marriage, Aylmer sat gazing at his wife with a trouble in his countenance that grew stronger until he spoke. Georgiana, said he, has it never occurred to you that the mark upon your cheek might be removed? No, indeed, said she, smiling, but perceiving the seriousness of his manner, she blushed deeply. To tell you the truth, it has been so often called a charm that I was simple enough to imagine it might be so. Ah, upon another face, perhaps, it might, replied her husband, but never on yours. No, dearest Georgiana, you came so nearly perfect from the hand of nature that this slightest possible defect, which we hesitate whether to term a defect or a beauty, shocks me as being the visible mark of an earthly imperfection. Shocks you, my husband? cried Georgiana, deeply hurt, at first reddening with momentary anger, but then bursting into tears. Then why did you take me from my mother's side? You cannot love. 
What shocks you? To explain this conversation, it must be mentioned that in the center of Georgiana's left cheek there was a singular mark, deeply interwoven, as it were, with the texture and substance of her face. In the usual state of her complexion, a healthy though delicate bloom, the mark wore a tint of deeper crimson, which imperfectly defined its shape amid the surrounding rosiness. When she blushed, it gradually became more indistinct, and finally vanished amid the triumphant rush of blood that bathed the whole cheek with its brilliant glow. But if any shifting motion caused her to turn pale, there was the mark again, a crimson stain upon the snow, in what Aylmer sometimes deemed an almost fearful distinctness. Its shape bore not a little similarity to the human hand, though of the smallest pygmy size. Georgiana's lovers were wont to say that some fairy at her birth hour had laid her tiny hand upon the infant's cheek and left this impress there in token of the magic endowments that were to give her such sway over all hearts. Many a desperate swain would have risked life for the privilege of pressing his lips to the mysterious hand. It must not be concealed, however, that the impression wrought by this fairy sign manual varied exceedingly according to the difference of temperance in the beholders. Some fastidious persons, but they were exclusively of her own sex, affirmed that the bloody hand, as they chose to call it, quite destroyed the effect of Georgiana's beauty, and rendered her countenance even hideous. But it would be as reasonable to say that one of those small blue stains which sometimes occur in the purest statuary marble would convert the eve of powers to a monster." Masculine observers, if the birthmark did not heighten their admiration, contented themselves with wishing it away, that the world might possess one living specimen of ideal loveliness without the semblance of a flaw. After his marriage, for he thought little or nothing of the matter before, Aylmer discovered that this was the case with himself. Had she been less beautiful, if Envy's self could have found aught else to sneer at, he might have felt his affection heightened by the prettiness of this mimic hand, now vaguely portrayed, now lost, now stealing forth again, and glimmering to and fro with every pulse of emotion that throbbed within her heart. But seeing her otherwise so perfect, he found this one defect— grow more and more intolerable with every moment of their united lives. It was the fatal flaw of humanity which nature, in one shape or another, stamps ineffaceably on all her productions, either to imply that they are temporary and finite, or that their perfection must be wrought by toil and pain." The crimson hand expressed the ineludable grip in which mortality clutches the highest and purest of earthly mold, degrading them into kindred with the lowest, and even with the very brutes, like whom their visible frames return to dust. In this manner, 
selecting it as the symbol of his wife's liability to sin, sorrow, decay, and death, Eilmer's somber imagination was not long in rendering the birthmark a frightful object, causing him more trouble and horror than ever Georgiana's beauty, whether of soul or sense, had given him delight. At all the seasons which should have been their happiest, he invariably, and without intending it, nay, in spite of a purpose to the contrary, reverted to this one disastrous topic. Trifling as it first appeared, it so connected itself with innumerable trains of thought and modes of feeling that it became the central point of all. With the morning twilight, Eilmer opened his eyes upon his wife's face and recognized the symbol of imperfection. And when they sat together at the evening hearth, his eyes wandered stealthily to her cheek and beheld, flickering with the blaze of the wood fire, the spectral hand that wrote mortality where he would fain have worshipped. Georgiana soon learned to shudder at his gaze. It needed but a glance, with the peculiar expression that his face often wore, to change the roses of her cheek into a death-like paleness, amid which the crimson hand was brought strongly out, like a bas-relief of ruby on the whitest marble. Late one night, when the lights were growing dim, so as hardly to betray the stain on the poor wife's cheek, she herself, for the first time, voluntarily took up the subject. "'Do you remember, my dear Eilmer?' said she, with a feeble attempt at a smile. "'Have you any recollection of a dream last night about this odious hand?' "'None, none whatever,' replied Eilmer, starting. But then he added, in a dry, cold tone, affected for the sake of concealing the real depth of his emotion, I might well dream of it, for before I fell asleep it had taken a pretty firm hold of my fancy. And you did dream of it, continued Georgiana hastily, for she dreaded lest a gush of tears should interrupt what she had to say. A terrible dream! I wonder that you can forget it. Is it possible to forget this one expression? It is in her heart now. We must have it out! Reflect, my husband, for by all means I would have you recall that dream. The mind is in a sad state when sleep, the all-involving, cannot confine her specters within the dim region of her sway, but suffers them to break forth, affrighting this actual life with secrets that perchance belong to a deeper one. Eilmer now remembered his dream. He had fancied himself with his servant, Aminadab, attempting an operation for the removal of the birthmark. But the deeper went the knife, the deeper sank the hand, until at length its tiny grasp appeared to have caught hold of Georgiana's heart, whence, however, her husband was inexorably resolved to cut or wrench it away. When the dream had shaped itself perfectly in his memory, Eilmer sat in his wife's presence with a guilty feeling. Truth often finds its way to the mind close muffled in robes of sleep, 
and then speaks with uncompromising directness of matters in regard to which we practice an unconscious self-deception during our waking moments. Until now, he had not been aware of the tyrannizing influence acquired by one idea over his mind, and of the links which he might find in his heart to go for the sake of giving himself peace. Eilmer, resumed Georgiana solemnly, I know not what may be the cost to both of us to rid me of this fatal birthmark. Perhaps its removal may cause cureless deformity, or maybe the stain goes as deep as life itself. Again, do we know that there is a possibility, on any terms, of unclasping the firm grip of this little hand which was laid upon me before I came into the world? Dearest Georgiana, I have spent much thought upon the subject, hastily interrupted Aylmer. I am convinced of the perfect practicability of its removal. If there be the remotest possibility of it, continued Georgiana, let the attempt be made at whatever risk. Danger is nothing to me, for life, while this hateful mark makes me the object of your horror and disgust, life is a burden which I would fling down with joy. Either remove this dreadful hand, or take my wretched life. You have deep science. All the world bears witness of it. You have achieved great wonders. Cannot you remove this little, little mark, which I cover with the tips of two small fingers? Is this beyond your power, for the sake of your own peace, and to save your poor wife from madness? "'Noblest, dearest, tenderest wife!' cried Aylmer, rapturously. "'Doubt not my power. "'I have already given the matter the deepest thought, "'thought which might almost have enlightened me "'to create a being less perfect than yourself. "'Georgiana, you have led me deeper than ever "'into the heart of science. "'I feel myself fully competent to render this dear cheek "'as faultless as its fellow.' And then, most beloved, what will be my triumph when I have corrected what nature left imperfect in her fairest work? Even Pygmalion, when his sculptured woman assumed life, felt not greater ecstasy than mine will be. It is resolved, then, said Georgiana, faintly smiling. And, Aylmer, spare me not, though you should find the birthmark take refuge in my heart at last. Her husband tenderly kissed her cheek, her right cheek, not that which bore the impress of the crimson hand. The next day, Aylmer appraised his wife of a plan that he had formed, whereby he might have opportunity for the intense thought and constant watchfulness which the proposed operation would require, while Georgiana, likewise, would enjoy the perfect repose essential to its success. They were to seclude themselves in the extensive apartments occupied by Aylmer as a laboratory, and where, during his toilsome youth, he had made discoveries in the elemental powers of nature that had roused the admiration of all the learned societies in Europe. Seated calmly in this laboratory, the pale philosopher had investigated the secrets of the highest cloud region and of the profoundest minds, 
He had satisfied himself of the causes that kindled and kept alive the fires of the volcano, and had explained the mystery of fountains, and how it is that they gush forth, some so bright and pure, and others with rich medicinal virtues, from the dark bosom of the earth. Here, too, at an earlier period, he had studied the wonders of the human frame, and attempted to fathom the very process by which nature assimilates all her precious influences from earth and air, and from the spiritual world, to create and foster man, her masterpiece. The latter pursuit, however, Aylmer had long laid aside an unwilling recognition of the truth, against which all seekers sooner or later stumble, that our great creative mother, while she amuses us with apparently working in the broadest sunshine, is yet severely careful to keep her own secrets, and, in spite of her pretended openness, shows us nothing but results. She permits us, indeed, to mar, but seldom to mend, and, like a jealous patentee, on no account to make. Now, however, Aylmer resumed these half-forgotten investigations, not, of course, with such hopes or wishes as first suggested them, but because they involved much physiological truth and lay in the path of his proposed scheme for the treatment of Georgiana. As he led her over the threshold of the laboratory, Georgiana was cold and tremulous. Aylmer looked cheerfully into her face, with intent to reassure her, but was so startled with the intense glow of the birthmark upon the whiteness of her cheek that he could not restrain a strong convulsive shudder. His wife fainted. Aminadab! Aminadab! shouted Aylmer, stamping violently on the floor. Forthwith there issued from an inner apartment a man of low stature but bulky frame, with shaggy hair hanging about his visage which was grimmed with the vapors of the furnace. This personage had been Aylmer's underworker during his whole scientific career and was admirably fitted for that office by his great mechanical readiness and the skill with which, while incapable of comprehending a single principle, he executed all the details of his master's experiments. With his vast strength, his shaggy hair, his smoky aspect, and the indescribable earthiness that encrusted him, he seemed to represent man's physical nature, while Aylmer's slender figure and pale intellectual face were no less apt a type of the spiritual element. "'Throw open the door of the boudoir, Aminadab,' said Aylmer, "'and burn a pastille.' "'Yes, master,' answered Aminadab, looking intently at the lifeless form of Georgiana, and then he muttered to himself, If she were my wife, I'd never part with that birthmark. When Georgiana recovered consciousness, she found herself breathing an atmosphere of penetrating fragrance, the gentle potency of which had recalled her from her death-like faintness. The scene around her looked like enchantment. Aylmer had converted those smoky, dingy, somber rooms where he had spent his brightest years in recondite pursuits into a series of beautiful apartments not unfit to be the secluded abode of a lovely woman. The walls were hung with gorgeous curtains 
which imparted the combination of grandeur and grace that no other species of adornment can achieve. And as they fell from the ceiling to the floor, their rich and ponderous folds, concealing all angles and straight lines, appeared to shut in the scene from infinite space. For aught Georgiana knew, it might be a pavilion among the clouds. And Aylmer, excluding the sunshine, which would have interfered with his chemical processes, had supplied its place with perfumed lamps, emitting flames of various hue, but all uniting in a soft, empurpled radiance. He now knelt by his wife's side, watching her earnestly, but without alarm, for he was confident in his science, and felt that he could draw a magic circle round her within which no evil might intrude. "'Where am I? Ah, I remember,' said Georgiana, faintly, as she placed her hand over her cheek to hide the terrible mark from her husband's eyes. "'Fear not, dearest,' exclaimed he. "'Do not shrink from me. Believe me, Georgiana. I even rejoice in this single imperfection, since it will be such a rapture to remove it.' "'Oh, spare me,' sadly replied his wife. "'Pray do not look at it again.' I never can forget the convulsive shudder. In order to soothe Georgiana, and, as it were, to release her mind from the burden of actual things, Aylmer now put in practice some of the light and playful secrets which science had taught him among its profounder lore. Airy figures, absolutely bodiless ideas— and forms of unsubstantial beauty came and danced before her, imprinting their momentary footsteps on beams of light. Though she had some indistinct idea of the methods of these optical phenomena, still the illusion was almost perfect enough to warrant the belief that her husband possessed sway over the spiritual world. Then again, when she felt a wish to look forth from her seclusion, immediately, as if her thoughts were answered, the procession of external existence flitted across a screen. The scenery and the figures of actual life were perfectly represented, but with that bewitching yet indescribable difference which always makes a picture, an image, or a shadow so much more attractive than the original. When wearied of this... Aylmer bade her cast her eyes upon a vessel containing a quality of earth. She did so, with little interest at first, but was soon startled to perceive the germ of a plant shooting upward from the soil. Then came the slender stalk, the leaves gradually unfolded themselves, and amid them was a perfect and lovely flower. "'It is magical,' cried Georgiana. "'I dare not touch it.' "'Nay, pluck it.' "'answered Aylmer. "'Pluck it, and inhale its brief perfume while you may. "'The flower will wither in a few moments "'and leave nothing save its brown seed vessels. "'But thence may be perpetuated a race as ephemeral as itself.' But Georgiana had no sooner touched the flower than the whole plant suffered a blight, its leaves turning coal-black, as if by the agency of fire.' "'There was too powerful a stimulus,' said Aylmer thoughtfully. 
To make up for this abortive experiment, he proposed to take her portrait by a scientific process of his own invention. It was to be effected by rays of light striking upon a polished plate of metal. Georgiana assented, but on looking at the result, was affrighted to find the features of the portrait blurred and indefinable, while the minute figure of a hand appeared where the cheek should have been. Aylmer snatched the metallic plate and threw it into a jar of corrosive acid. Soon, however, he forgot these mortifying failures. In the intervals of study and chemical experiment, he came to her flushed and exhausted, but seemed invigorated by her presence, and spoke in glowing language of the resources of his art. He gave a history of the long dynasty of the alchemists who spent so many ages in quest of their universal solvent by which the golden principle might be elicited from all things vile and base. Aylmer appeared to believe that by the plainest scientific logic it was altogether within the limits of possibility to discover this long-sought medium. But, he added, a philosopher who should go deep enough to acquire the power would attain too lofty a wisdom to stoop to the exercise of it. Not less singular were his opinions in regard to the elixir vitae. He more than intimated that it was at his option to concoct a liquid that should prolong life for years, perhaps interminably, but that it would produce a discord in nature which all the world, and chiefly the quaffer of immortal nostrum, would find cause to curse. Aylmer, are you in earnest? asked Georgiana, looking at him with amazement and fear. It is terrible to possess such power, or even to dream of possessing it. Oh, do not tremble, my love, said her husband. I would not wrong either you or myself by working such inharmonious effects upon our lives. But I would have you consider how trifling, in comparison, is the skill requisite to remove this little hand. At the mention of the birthmark, Georgiana, as usual, shrank as if a red-hot iron had touched her cheek. Again Aylmer applied himself to his labors. She could hear his voice in the distant furnace room, giving directions to Aminadab, whose harsh, uncouth, misshapen tones were audible in response, more like the grunt or growl of a brute than human speech. After hours of absence, Aylmer reappeared and proposed that she should now examine his cabinet of chemical products and natural treasures of the earth. Among the former he showed her a small vial, which, he remarked, was contained a gentle yet most powerful fragrance, capable of impregnating all the breezes that blow across the kingdom. They were of inestimable value— the contents of that little vial, and as he said so, he threw some of the perfume into the air and filled the room with piercing and invigorating delight. And what is this? asked Georgiana, pointing to a small crystal globe containing a gold-colored liquid. It is so beautiful to the eye that I could imagine it the elixir of life. In one sense it is, 
replied Aylmer, or rather the elixir of immortality. It is the most precious poison that ever was concocted in the world. By its aid, I could apportion the lifetime of any mortal at whom you might point your finger. The strength of the dose would determine whether he were to linger out years or drop dead in the midst of a breath. No king on his guarded throne could keep his life if I, in my private station, should deem that the welfare of millions justified me in depriving him of it. Why do you keep such a terrific drug? inquired Georgiana in horror. Do not mistrust me, dearest, said her husband, smiling. Its virtuous potency is yet greater than its harmful one. But see, here is a powerful cosmetic. With a few drops of this in a vase of water, freckles may be washed away as easily as the hands are cleansed. A stronger infusion would take the blood out of the cheek and leave the rosiest beauty a pale ghost. Is it with this lotion that you intend to bathe my cheek? asked Georgiana anxiously. Oh no, hastily replied her husband. This is merely superficial. Your case demands a remedy that shall go deeper. In his interviews with Georgiana, Aylmer generally made minute inquiries as to her sensations and whether the confinement of the rooms and the temperature of the atmosphere agreed with her. These questions had such a particular drift that Georgiana began to conjecture that she was already subjected to certain physical influences, either breathed in with the fragrant air or taken with her food. She fancied likewise, but it might be altogether fancy, that there was a stirring up of her system, a strange, indefinite sensation creeping through her veins, and tingling, half painfully, half pleasurably, at her heart. Still, whenever she dared to look in the mirror, there she beheld herself pale as a white rose, and with the crimson birthmark stamped upon her cheek. Not even Aylmer now hated it, so much as she. To dispel the tedium of the hours, which her husband found it necessary to devote to the processes of combination and analysis, Georgiana turned over the volumes of his scientific library. In many dark old tomes she met with chapters full of romance and poetry. They were the works of philosophers of the Middle Ages, such as Albertus Magnus, Cornelius Agrippa, Paracelsus, and the famous friar who created the prophetic brazen head. All these antique naturalists stood in advance of their centuries, yet were imbued with some of their credulity, and therefore were believed and perhaps imagined themselves to have acquired from the investigation of nature a power above nature, and from physics a sway over the spiritual world. Hardly less curious and imaginative were the early volumes of the transactions of the Royal Society, in which the members, knowing little of the limits of natural possibility, were continually recording wonders or proposing methods whereby wonders might be wrought. But to Georgiana the most engrossing volume was a large folio from her husband's own hand, in which he had recorded every experiment of his scientific career, its original aim, 
the methods adopted for its development, and its final success or failure with the circumstances to which either event was attributable. The book, in truth, was both the history and emblem of his ardent, ambitious, imaginative, yet practical and laborious life. He handled physical details as if there were nothing beyond them, yet spiritualized them all, and redeemed himself from materialism by his strong and eager aspiration toward the infinite. In his grasp, the veriest clod of earth assumed a soul. Georgiana, as she read, reverenced Aylmer and loved him more profoundly than ever, but with a less entire dependence on his judgment than heretofore. Much as he had accomplished, she could not but observe that his most splendid successes were almost invariably failures, if compared with the ideal at which he aimed. His brightest diamonds were mere pebbles, and felt to be so by himself, in comparison with the inestimable gems which lay hidden beyond his reach. The volume, rich with achievements that had won renown for its author, was yet as melancholy a record as ever mortal hand had penned. It was the sad confession and continual exemplification of the shortcomings of the composite man, the spirit burdened with clay and working in matter, and of the despair that assails the higher nature at finding itself so miserably thwarted by the earthly part. Perhaps every man of genius, in whatever sphere, might recognize the image of his own experience in Aylmer's journal. So deeply did these reflections affect Georgiana that she laid her face upon the open volume and burst into tears. In this situation, she was found by her husband. It is dangerous to read in a sorcerer's books, said he with a smile, though his countenance was uneasy and displeased. Georgiana, there are pages in that volume which I can scarcely glance over and keep my senses. Take heed lest it prove as detrimental to you. It has made me worship you more than ever, said she. Ah, wait for this one success, rejoined he, then worship me if you will. I shall deem myself hardly unworthy of it. But come, I have sought you for the luxury of your voice. Sing to me, dearest. So she poured out the liquid music of her voice to quench the thirst of his spirit. He then took his leave with a boyish exuberance of gaiety, assuring her that her seclusion would endure but little longer, and that the result was already certain. Scarcely had he departed when Georgiana felt irresistibly impelled to follow him. She had forgotten to inform Aylmer of a symptom which for two or three hours past had begun to excite her attention. It was a sensation in the fatal birthmark not painful, but which induced a restlessness throughout her system. Hastening after her husband, she intruded for the first time into the laboratory. The first thing that struck her eyes was the furnace, that hot and feverish worker, with the intense glow of its fire, which by the quantities of soot clustered above it seemed to have been burning for ages. There was a distilling apparatus in full operation. Around the room were retorts, tubes, cylinders, 
crucibles, and other apparatus of chemical research. An electrical machine stood ready for immediate use. The atmosphere felt oppressively close and was tainted with gaseous odors which had been tormented forth by the processes of science. The severe and homely simplicity of the apartment with its naked walls and brick pavement, looked strange, accustomed as Georgiana had become to the fantastic elegance of her boudoir. But what chiefly, indeed almost solely, drew her attention was the aspect of Aylmer himself. He was pale as death, anxious and absorbed, and hung over the furnace as if it depended upon his utmost watchfulness whether the liquid which it was distilling should be the draught of immortal happiness or misery. How different from the sanguine and joyous mien that he had assumed for Georgiana's encouragement. Carefully now, Aminadab, carefully, thou human machine, carefully, thou man of clay, muttered Aylmer, more to himself than his assistant. Now, if there be a thought too much or too little, it is all over. Ho, ho, mumbled Aminadab. Look, master, look. Aylmer raised his eyes hastily, and at first reddened, then grew paler than ever on beholding Georgiana. He rushed toward her and seized her arm with a grip that left the print of his fingers upon it. Why do you come hither? Have you no trust in your husband? cried he impetuously. Would you throw the blight of that fatal birthmark over my labors? It is not well done. Go, prying woman, go. Nay, Aylmer, said Georgiana, with a firmness of which she possessed no stinted endowment. It is not you that have a right to complain. You mistrust your wife. You have concealed the anxiety with which you watch the development of this experiment. Think not so unworthily of me, my husband. Tell me all the risk we run, and fear not that I shall shrink, for my share in it is far less than your own. No, no, Georgiana, said Aylmer impatiently. It must not be. I submit, replied she calmly, and... Aylmer, I shall quaff whatever draft you bring me, but it will be on the same principle that would induce me to take a dose of poison if offered by your hand. My noble wife, said Aylmer, deeply moved, I knew not the height and depth of your nature until now. Nothing shall be concealed. Know, then, that this crimson hand, superficial as it seems, has clutched its grasp into your being with a strength of which I had no previous conception. I have already administered agents powerful enough to do aught except to change your entire physical system. Only one thing remains to be tried. If that fail us, we are ruined. Why did you hesitate to tell me this? asked she. Because, Georgiana, said Aylmer in a low voice, there is danger. Danger? There is but one danger, that this horrible stigma shall be left upon my cheek, cried Georgiana. Remove it, remove it. 
whatever be the cost, or we shall both go mad. Heaven knows your words are too true, said Aylmer sadly. And now, my dearest, return to your boudoir. In a little while all will be tested. He conducted her back and took leave of her with a solemn tenderness which spoke far more than his words how much was now at stake. After his departure, Georgiana became rapt in musings. She considered the character of Aylmer, and did it completer justice than at any previous moment. Her heart exulted, while it trembled, at his honorable love, so pure and lofty that it would accept nothing less than perfection, nor miserably make itself contend with an earthlier nature than he had dreamed of. She felt how much more precious was such a sentiment than the meaner kind which would have borne with the imperfection for her sake, and have been guilty of treason to holy love by degrading its perfect ideal to the level of the actual. And with her whole spirit she prayed that, for a single moment, she might satisfy his highest and deepest conception. Longer than one moment, she well knew it could not be, for his spirit was ever on the march, ever ascending, and each instant required something that was beyond the scope of the instant before. The sound of her husband's footsteps aroused her. He bore a crystal goblet containing a liquor colorless as water, but bright enough to be the draft of immortality. Aylmer was pale, but it seemed rather the consequence of a highly wrought state of mind and tension of spirit than of fear or doubt. The concoction of the draft has been perfect, said he, in answer to Georgiana's look. Unless all my science has deceived me, it cannot fail. Save on your account, my dearest Aylmer, observed his wife, I might wish to put off this birthmark of mortality by relinquishing mortality itself in preference to any other mode. Life is but a sad possession to those who have attained precisely the degree of moral advancement at which I stand. Were I weaker and blinder, it might be happiness. Were I stronger, it might be endured, hopefully. But being what I find myself, methinks I am, of all mortals, the most fit to die. You are fit for heaven without tasting death, replied her husband. But why do we speak of dying? The draft cannot fail. Behold its effect upon this plant. On the window seat there stood a geranium diseased with yellow blotches, which had overspread all its leaves. Aylmer poured a small quantity of the liquid upon the soil in which it grew. In a little time, when the roots of the plant had taken up the moisture, the unsightly blotches began to be extinguished in a living verdure. There needed no proof, said Georgiana quietly. Give me the goblet. I joyfully stake all upon your word. Drink, then, thou lofty creature, exclaimed Aylmer, with fervid admiration. There is no taint of imperfection on thy spirit. Thy sensible frame, too, shall soon be all perfect. 
she quaffed the liquid and returned the goblet to his hand. It is grateful, said she with a placid smile. Methinks it is like water from a heavenly fountain, for it contains I know not what of unobtrusive fragrance and deliciousness. It allays a feverish thirst that had parched me for many days. Now, dearest, let me sleep. My earthly senses are closing over my spirit like the leaves around the heart of a rose at sunset. She spoke the last words with a gentle reluctance, as if it required almost more energy than she could command to pronounce the faint and lingering syllables. Scarcely had they loitered through her lips ere she was lost in slumber. Aylmer sat by her side, watching her aspect with the emotions proper to a man, the whole value of whose existence was involved in the process now to be tested. Mingled with this mood, however, was the philosophic investigation characteristic of the man of science. Not the minutest symptom escaped him. A heightened flush of the cheek, a slight irregularity of breath, a quiver of the eyelid, a hardly perceptible tremor through the frame. Such were the details which, as the moments passed, he wrote down in his folio volume. Intense thought had set its stamp upon every previous page of that volume, but the thoughts of years were all concentrated upon the last. While thus employed, he failed not to gaze often at the fatal hand, and not without a shudder. Yet once, by a strange and unaccountable impulse, he pressed it with his lips. His spirit recoiled, however, in the very act, and Georgiana, out of the midst of her deep sleep, moved uneasily and murmured as if in remonstrance. Again Aylmer resumed his watch, nor was it without avail. The crimson hand, which at first had been strongly visible upon the marble paleness of Georgiana's cheek, now grew more faintly outlined. She remained not less pale than ever, but the birthmark, with every breath that came and went, lost somewhat of its former distinctness. Its presence had been awful. Its departure was more awful still. Watch the stain of the rainbow fading out of the sky, and you will know how that mysterious symbol passed away. By heaven, it is well nigh gone, said Aylmer to himself, in almost irrepressible ecstasy. I can scarcely trace it now. Success! Success! And now it is like the faintest rose color. The lightest flush of blood across her cheek would overcome it. But she is so pale. He drew aside the window curtain and suffered the light of natural day to fall into the room and rest upon her cheek. At the same time, he heard a gross, hoarse chuckle, which he had long known as his servant Aminadab's expression of delight. Ah, Claude! "'Ah, earthly mass!' cried Aylmer, laughing in a sort of frenzy. "'You have served me well. "'Matter and spirit, earth and heaven, have both done their part in this. "'Laugh, thing of the senses! "'You have earned the right to laugh!' 
These exclamations broke Georgiana's sleep. She slowly unclosed her eyes and gazed into the mirror which her husband had arranged for that purpose. A faint smile flitted over her lips when she recognized how barely perceptible was now that crimson hand which had once blazed forth with such disastrous brilliancy as to scare away all their happiness. But then her eyes sought Aylmer's face with a trouble and anxiety that he could by no means account for. My poor Aylmer, murmured she. Poor? Nay, richest, happiest, most favored, exclaimed he. My peerless bride, it is successful. You are perfect. My poor Aylmer she repeated with a more than human tenderness. You have aimed loftily. You have done nobly. Do not repent that with so high and pure a feeling you have rejected the best the earth could offer. Aylmer, dearest Aylmer, I am dying. Alas, it was too true. The fatal hand had grappled with the mystery of life and was the bond by which an angelic spirit kept itself in union with a mortal frame. As the last crimson tint of the birthmark, that sole token of human imperfection, faded from her cheek, the parting breath of the now perfect woman passed into the atmosphere, and her soul, lingering a moment near her husband, took its heavenward flight. Then a hoarse, chuckling laugh was heard again. Thus ever does the gross fatality of earth exult in its invariable triumph over the immortal essence which, in this dim sphere of half-development, demands the completeness of a higher state. Yet, had Aylmer reached a profounder wisdom, he need not thus have flung away the happiness which would have woven his mortal life of the selfsame texture with the celestial. The momentary circumstance was too strong for him. He failed to look beyond the shadowy scope of time and living once for all in eternity to find the perfect future. In the present. Hi, I'm Jesse. And I am the one they call Fred. We're going to talk about The Birthmark by Nathaniel Hawthorne, which came out in March 1843 in a magazine called The Pioneer, with a essay by Edgar Allan Poe in the same issue about English verse. And I, I went through all of the issues of The Pioneer that I could find, and uh, it was basically a Hawthorne uh, Poe fest, and and I was thinking about it, and really those are the only people who were writing in America back then. <laughs> so I think um, America was probably populated by about six people in 1840s era. Somehow they got a lot more for the Civil War to kill off. <laughs> well, um, yeah, and uh, Hawthorne, in fact, 
was born just a few years before Poe died just a few years after him. So mm-hmm. they are they they are go together. Yeah, I didn't think of them as contemporaries for some reason, but they they really are. Mm-hmm. I think though because Poe w- didn't get famous for his novels, um, Hawthorne got famous for uh, the Scarlet Letter, mm-hmm. and I, I was one of the audio dramas I was listening to of this. Uh, or maybe the only audio drama of this has a, uh, a quote by Poe about Hawthorne. Yes. Um, and that was a really, I thought that was a very apt one. And it basically said that he's awesome. <laughs> and yeah, that, uh, they should have put uh, that at the beginning. I, I listened to that. Was yeah. That, who, who put that on? CBS Radio Mystery CBS. Theater. Yeah. I was going to say BBC, CBS. but it's CBS. Yeah. They should have put that at the beginning because they I think, should have. um, I mean, the birthmark is not particularly well known. I don't know. But everybody knows Poe. I'm sorry? Yeah, well, it's, I mean, it's not as well known as Poe, but uh, this story is very commonly taught in school, I think. Mm -hmm. I mean, not compared to The Scarlet Letter, but um, if you're introducing younger kids, I guess you you start with a short story. I don't know why they would introduce this, this story. This is an... Very difficult to classify story, and I have no idea why you wanted to do it as a show, because it is very difficult. I find Hawthorne very um, difficult to understand what he's talking about. I, I like intellectually, I know he's obsessed with sin. Yes, but for me, I don't have that at all. Like, I mean, I guess maybe when I was a little bit. You know, when I was lo- younger, and everybody around me was talking about that's sinful and stuff like that. that well, not Jesse, I hate to break it to you, but it. there's there, there's a word for people who don't have a conscience. <laughs> They're called sociopaths. Yeah, but uh, I do have a conscience, but it's not. It, I I just feel guilty uh, for having hurt somebody's feelings. I don't think of it as like. Uh, a crime against God or anything. Okay, like that. well, yeah. I mean, the, your your theology is different, so uh, I guess. So you 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 deal with those unpleasant feelings associated with doing bad. Yeah, things. I try not to do different, differently. Yeah, I try not to because people get offended for all sorts of reasons. But if 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 I didn't do anything wrong, I don't feel bad, right? It, if somebody gets really upset about something. Uh, it's like, you shouldn't have talked about that. My son died in a car fire or whatever. It is. <laughs> but, um, yeah, but I got to live my life and I like talking about car fires or whatever. It is. Um, okay, well, yeah. So I wouldn't feel bad about that. I just, this lady's overly sensitive. Well, there's, um, there, I mean, there's, I there's neurosis. There's, um, there's, there's the shame involved in uh, committing a faux pas or, you know, there, there, it's it's perfectly possible to hurt someone and feel bad and yet not have committed a sin or or done anything objectively wrong it was merely thoughtless or just bad luck you know because so what is it what is it uh, are you shaped by sin <laughs> i mean like every story that hawthorne writes is a, is essentially about some sort of sin and, uh, and also some sort of mark upon the family or something like that. Yeah, yeah. It particularly, well, see, I hadn't read any Hawthorne at all. Oh. So my wife, um, as you were talking about, uh, my wife 
had to read The Scarlet Letter in high school. Mm-hmm. And she was permanently scarred by a teacher. I think I who, think everybody's scarred by people teaching this in school. But well, continue. Well, Sorry. She, she, her teacher was one of these people who wanted to to find Freudian subconscious Freudian messages in everything, and so <laughs> and that art. I was before the show. We were talking. I mentioned this article, which I'm kind of hesitant to summarize because I want to reread it. But it's um, it's in Commentary magazine. About a month ago, it showed up. Why college kids are avoiding the study of literature by mm. Gary Saul Morrison. And one of the things that he's critical of is people, uh, teachers who basically impose their own agenda on on the literature and right. sort of run off on a tangent. And mm. oh, this is an excuse for me to talk about my my hobby horse. And so she she was. Uh, uh, she says she um, was. She describes the class in those and that she took on the Scarlet Letter in those terms. So, uh, and of course, you know, um, because the sin in the Scarlet Letter is a sexual one, and yeah. all the the shame and the hiding of it. The the it's basically the woman is caught and is punished by the community, but the man yeah. continues to. Uh, live hypocritically, and I mean that 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 does kind of lend itself to a kind of. Uh, uh, well, I, I think know. it's a very interesting story. I don't, I don't, I don't think children should be uh, given it. Not because you know it's about sin or sex or anything like that. It's just it's very incredible. It's it's way too dense. It, ah, the yeah. writing it takes like. 40 minutes to describe, you know, her standing in front of the crowd. Textually, he is, you know, getting inside each member of the crowd's head and describing Mm -hmm. how she holds her arms in a certain way. And and ultimately, it's it's just too difficult to to go, you know, hey, kids, go read this for homework and Mm -hmm. come back to class. It's like uh, half the vocabulary words in the first paragraph will be unheard of by the children. Oh, uses big vocab, but he he sort of concentrates it in a couple of areas. And it's relatively accessible because of the first person point of view. So he so generally uses um, so they're quite different in that respect. This, this, I mean, this one I would never give to. I I had several opportunities this week and previous weeks to share this with my students, our high school level, uh, <laughs> university level, and uh, lower, and I didn't. Mm-hmm. I, I happily share Lovecraft stories, mm-hmm. and um, yeah, uh, uh, and that's not because. It's not because, you know, I think it's a bad story or anything like that. It's, it's just it, it, there's way too high a level for kids. I'll, I'll share Lovecraft poems with, you know, kids in eight years old. <laughs> no well, problem. yeah, I mean, in, on, it was just this week, wasn't it? On Twitter, you were posting the uh, crayon drawings. Sure. That. That's which a, which a, Lovecraft poem a, was that? Uh, we did, we were doing, um, Fungi from Yuggoth. Fungi from Fungi from Yuggoth are really good poems. That's not an easy poem. I looked it up. And that's not a particular There's one called Expectancy and 
Well, well, I've been doing them uh, in the summer because I get a lot of young kids in the summer. And basically, we read through it. We go through the vocabulary. And then we say, what is the image that's described in the story? And so then we start, we, we depict it afterwards. And then it, because we do another one in the next day or the next week, um, they, they learn the vocabulary that way. And there's a lot of important vocabulary words kids don't learn, like harbor, right? It's like they just don't learn that in school. Because harbor? Yeah. What? Port. You know, like... They don't know what a harbor is? No, because they don't go to harbors, right? Wow. Today's kids are basically shuttled between school and home. Yeah. In the mall, right? They don't go outside. They are, I mean, I'm not sounding like an old man here. I'm just describing the actuality. Most yeah. kids don't go to places that have the, the vocabulary of, you know, if you read ancient uh, American literature like this, um, this is one of the exceptions. But uh, Lovecraft is obsessed with harbors and, and, and architecture and all sorts right. of stuff like this. Right. this. This is way too hard because it's it's mostly about um about alchemy <laughs> yeah well <laughs> let me totally disconnected from let me in take our, it my past. turn to rant yeah, against yeah. hawthorne because uh to prepare for the show i decided to read the house of the seven gables wow and i think i chose it because uh, th- there was an audio um version of it available at mm-hmm. my public library and um it's prob- that was probably the reason. Or maybe I just decided I wanted to s- steer away from the Scarlet Letter because it was too well-known, or who knows why. Mm-hmm. But, um, yeah, he, um, you know how um, you, have, you have a couple of revolutions in literature in the 20th century. You've got the, the Hemingway Revolution, which is, of course, mm-hmm. to remove every unnecessary word. Mm-hmm. And then there's the other revolution, uh, which any any writing advice or you know how to you know write fiction type stuff that you encounter, they will tell you to dramatize. You know, uh, show don't tell. Don't tell. Yeah, right. The show don't tell revolution. Right. And once you've figured that out, and you know most authors nowadays are doing that. You look, Hawthorne is the is the tell, tell, tellingest tell. teller who ever told, and it's Hopefully. just that is that is how I would describe what is so exasperating about him. Just you know, I, I don't mind it uh, as long as I'm ready for that. You know, I gear into well, that mode. Yeah, uh, well, I, 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 he's not my favorite writer because he's obsessed with sin, mm-hmm. and I don't quite understand it. But on the other hand, I think that he has the right attitude towards sin. I'm not sure about it in this case, but like in the case of the Scarlet Letter, right? What's funny is that the sin is not her sin that is the one that we should obsess about. It's mm-hmm. the sort of the two-facedness of, of people and how they are willing to condemn others and not willing to accept their own sin. Right. Uh, which they don't even see as sin, perhaps. Right. Um, and he is so... He is so- Attacking yeah. the Puritan. It's funny because he's he's attacking 
the the kind of late stage decadent puritanism mm-hmm. which has turned into a judgmentalism and hypocrisy but if you he he is himself completely immersed in the puritan mindset so he he yeah. is a puritan and that obsession with sin and the the more healthy kind of puritanism which is uh let me you know let's let's clean house and let me start with my own <laughs> you know mm-hmm. which which is what the puritan movement uh you know in its healthiest aspects is all about so um but um this is an interesting yeah. take on it because um if you are doing Freudian readings, well, one of the one of the things that I found striking in that CBS Radio Mystery Theater adaptation was that I, I I was picking up a homosexual vibe, and I don't think it's there. I, I was like, because my mind is trying to understand what the motivation of this, like, what is the lesson he's trying to teach us? Mm-hmm. Is it science reaches too far? Well, not exactly. Um, because yeah. it's not exactly science. Right? You, you, you would think that's where he's headed from the very beginning of the story. Yeah, you know, and and this is this is so interesting because this is the first time in history that it's possible to write a, um, you know, a gothic horror. You've always got the evil wizard or the mad mm-hmm. scientist. Yeah, the sorcerer as it's yeah. described. But 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 th- but it's always in the past. It was either magic or religion. Which is twisted by the great man's hubris and, and arrogance. Right. But now it's possible for the first time in history to imagine that science might be the channel by which, which is going to give us or certain people so, unlimited power. It's that unlimited yeah. power which is so seductive and so dangerous and fascinating. And so it's it's funny when he starts describing the various experiments. And of course, he has no idea what he's talking about. You know, it's <laughs> speculative, um, and it, it's it's kind of cute and amusing. You know, everything is elixirs and you know, mm-hmm. potions and <laughs> that that I find pretty amusing and cute. But, well, you know, yeah. it's very early for that kind of thing. It it is, and what's also interesting. This is something Hawthorne always does that we always forget. Also, is that he's not writing about his contemporary time, right? Uh, Poe generally wrote about his, you know, his stories like Lovecraft are set in the period in which they are written. Mm-hmm. He's this is explicitly described as being in the latter half of the previous century, which would mean, you know, we're talking the 1700s. Which is oh, I missed well, that. That's crazy. Oh, it's not even futuristic. Then it's it's in not the even futuristic, and I'm not even sure it's set in the United States. I, I have a feeling mm-hmm. it's not. Um, Georgiana sounds like a you know European name mm-hmm. uh, a little bit. I mean, it could be a Puritan name as well. But what's what's the Aminadab? That does not sound like your standard American uh, muscle guy, you know. Well, maybe in some of the ports of New England, you might have a few, uh, sure. you know, people from faraway countries showing up, sailors. Sure. Maybe, maybe, maybe. But there's no there's no reason to. I couldn't find any textual evidence that it is set in the U.S. There are, there are other yes. stories that he's done that are, but it, it seems like. It could be any sort of European, you know, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm thinking 
sort of well, northern Europe, but not uh, Scandinavia, you know? I mean, um, um, Ilmer's house must be a castle or something because, yeah. I mean, he's got apartments that, you know, exclusively devoted to just his laboratories, which apparently Georgiana has never visited. That's right. Um, it's not clear that she and Aminadab have ever even met. No. The action of the story. So Aylmer, Aylmer's got this. By the way, I would like to apologize right now. I was very disappointed in my reading. Uh, I thought Why? it was particularly bad. <laughs> narration. Aylmer, Aylmer is not I the kept, right pronunciation. Aylmer is correct, but I got. I didn't know if it was Aylmer or Aylmer or Aylmer. I would and say I Aylmer. looked it up, and it's it's definitely Aylmer. But about a whole bunch of times, I got it wrong anyway, and I didn't even notice until it was too late. So anyway, I, mm. I apologize for that. Aylmer. Aylmer, Aylmer seems to have. You know, his he must be so rich that he his living situation and his very life is so compartmentalized that his domestic life and well, he works from home, but he's got a he's, <laughs> he's got a really big home. <laughs> he, he yeah. does. I I expect that it wasn't mentioned, but I would expect he's got you know an observatory mm-hmm. and he's you know he's only got the one servant that we know about, but. I think it might have been in the audio drama or the text, but uh, Aminadab says that he's only seen her from a distance, right? Mm-hmm. It's it's funny that it is described from this third person point of view. I would, uh, if I was writing this, uh, I I love the first person's perspective. I would have done it from one of the three characters' perspectives. I don't think it even really matters which one. Um, and it would be interesting to see from each perspective, maybe all three. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, what's interesting in the audio drama, they did it a lot through Aminadab, which I thought yeah. was a good way to go. It was a surprising um, choice, but it is a surprising know. choice. And, and they 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 turn a lot of this uh, narration, which is just telling, they turn it into a conversation between. Sure. Which is so much. I mean, that's the only way you could do it, really. It's audio, audio drama. Yeah, it's always going to be conversation, right? Right. Unless, unless you're, you know, moving uh, things on tables, and you, you know, what's interesting is there's like no even sounds of beakers or hearths, right? It's just voices, which is uh, one of the things that CBS Radio Mystery Theater I think is is pretty good at is 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 because they're 45 minutes in length. Um, that's l- much longer than normal. Is usually half hour for a radio drama for some reason, um, at least the old fashioned kind. Mm-hmm. It, it gives them enough time, and then there, there's also the the host narration, right? Which I quite like. It, it sort of bookends the the scenes. There's three acts usually, and then uh, there's the opening narration, closing narration, and then sort of setting the scene, mm-hmm. so that we we sort of know where we are and what's going on. This is a, a very strange story because we know it's going to happen, sort of, <laughs> and it happens, but I'm not sure why it, ha- uh, like he's obsessed with his wife's birthmark. Mm-hmm. He's got, she's got a birthmark on the left side of her face, right? Mm-hmm. Right. Her, which I, is somewhat symbolic, I guess. It's the evil side. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, I, I, that, that occurred to me too. Yeah, it's a hand. It's the, it's the sinister side. The sin. There you go. Sinister. You know, the Latin is yep. right is 
Dexter and Dexter uh, and Sinister. Sinister, yeah. If Dexter had a, a twin brother, his name would be Sinister, and he'd be <laughs> good. He wouldn't kill anybody. Um, so uh, why is it a hand? Right, that's a good. Question. She's been marked. Except She's been slapped. In the dream, the hand is grasping her heart. So I just—it's like it's reaching out from the core of her being and expressing itself on the surface of her body. Mm-hmm. I, that's that's the way I think of it. And and in 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 fixing it, which ultimately he fixes it through uh, not surgical means, which is how he dreams it, right? Mm-hmm. But through uh, a chemical means, I guess. Yes. Um, and it's it's interesting that. So one one of the good reasons I think to talk about this story is because it comes. It's it's pre Darwin actually, right? Mm-hmm. Um, written pre Darwin, but also set well pre Darwin. The the science in it is not the science we think about in you know. A hundred years later, uh, with you know accelerometers and that sort of thing, it's more like I've got these old books, and these old books have uh, all sorts of weird uh, uh, experiments done by you know European rich guys who <laughs> were trying to turn uh, lead into gold mm-hmm. and such. Um, so it, it falls after what many people consider the first science fiction novel, right? Uh, Mary Shelley's Frankenstein. And so it also is a mad scientist story, but it doesn't feel like a mad scientist story. It feels like a mad alchemist story, right? Mm-hmm. Right. He, he, he calls him a natural philosopher, which is the old term for science before mm-hmm. the yes. word science got used. Yes. But it, again, being set, you know, uh, 50 years or more before it is written, uh, the word science was around uh, then, so it, it 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 doesn't quite fit into the sort of standard science fiction fare. Well, right? we have to always keep in mind that the distinction between science and alchemy or magic was not clear cut until the dawn of the modern era. Well, and he, so you have people like. You know, the Royal Society in there. Those guys are scientists, right? No, but but think of like Isaac Newton, who who uh, was a scientist, <laughs> but he was also an alchemist. And yeah, in fact, uh, it's my understanding that mo- most of most of um, uh, Newton's writings are actually theological in nature. He yeah, spent yeah, most of his time on theology, yeah. and to him. You know, they didn't have these categories and specializations. He was a smart guy, interested in a lot of things, and he was just interested in knowledge by whatever means he could get his hands on it. So, I, I, I was thinking that it, this it was almost like the main character was Ben Franklin, you know, because he's uh, there's an explicit mention of electricity, yeah. how electricity is, is, right. is a really big deal. Uh, but I don't think Ben Franklin would act like this guy at all. You know, Ben Franklin was incredibly practical. Right. Um, and Elmer doesn't sound like much of a ladies' man either, as far as that goes. Uh, yeah, no, fact, not at all. Yeah. How did, if Georgiana is so beautiful, in spite of her one little birthmark, that uh, clearly she is, has lots of suitors, how did 
Elmer ever managed to woo her? Well, he he wiped off. It says in the story he he cleaned off the alchemical stains from his hands. <laughs> yeah. Washed, to, his, he recording, washed right? his, his face. Cat. Yeah. Right. He's got a castle. He's 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 famous for being you know uh, rich. I guess he must be rich. Yeah, but they didn't. Must yeah. be rich. She's she's not an idiot either. I I, I quite liked uh, how intelligent she is, despite you know yeah, foolish, but but foolishly she, submitting to yeah. uh, whatever her husband's wishes were. R- repeat what you just said because we lost it. It got interrupted. I I was saying that despite her despite her foolishly consenting to having her birthmark removed. Mm-hmm. Because it upsets her, her husband's uh, obsesses her husband. So I guess that's the word yeah. that this is about. Is this is obsession? Right? Well, I'd like to talk about Georgiana for a minute because sure, is Aylmer gaslighting her? <laughs> I don't think so. Uh, I, she I, she I, seems extremely gaslightable. That's uh, she is so submissive in spite of what you call her intelligence. I mean. He, yeah, he, well, she's she's reading Paracelsus, right? She's reading his own lab notes, and yeah, that's true. That is true. And she she, I think, I think to think of her as a regular person doesn't make sense. In the same way that thinking of him as a regular person doesn't make sense, she seems to be like a you know a medieval heroine or like one of those characters out of Greek mythology. She doesn't seem to act like a normal human being woman would. Mm-hmm. Um, because, yeah, birthmark is, uh, you know, maybe some birthmarks are, are very distracting, right? Yeah, well, um, and she's so otherwise perfect. It's she, That birthmark is the fly in the ointment. And well, I, I was think. thinking that imagine imagine it, it was not a birthmark, right? It's, so one of the things I was thinking is uh, maybe it's a sex change. That's what he really needs to have for her, right? Like if this was a sex change story, he would say, <laughs> "What, what? Earth are you talking about?" Exactly. What, why? Why are you obsessed with this? It's I love you, but you know the thing is, is I'm gay. So you have to. We have to change you into oh. what I need, right? Yeah, yeah. And she was mm-hmm. like, "Well, I guess," or a boot job story, right? It's like. <laughs> If this was a boob job story, you're perfect, Georgiana. You just need yeah. bigger boobs. And she's like, okay, I guess. Right? Everybody said she was beautiful. Re- remember what all the women said about her birthmark, right? Yeah. Yeah. Is that um, the, it utterly ruined her or right. something. Right? And all right. the men are like, oh, if, if they find it to be a problem, they just don't think about it. Right. Well, it, clearly, though, that he's he's signaling that their problem with her is... Um, envy, and so they they yeah, yeah, yeah. are motivated to exaggerate the degree to which that birthmark is a flaw. She says that it it can be covered up by the tips of two fingers. Yeah. Well, yeah, it's not tiny, but but I think it's 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 too small. Thing must, she must. I I I take it that her complexion is otherwise like you know a statue. Yeah, white yeah, statue. She's so, yeah. She's compared to marble twice, I think. A marble statue twice. You know, because like you know, say someone's has lots of freckles, no one is ever going to say that freckle right there. <laughs> that freckle is what 
um, you know, mars your beauty. Yeah, no, of course not. So um, what she should do probably is wear makeup in such a way that her face is covered with polka dots. And then there'd be no problem. Well, that was a fashion for a while, right after the uh, pockmarks of uh, of uh, smallpox. Right? Oh. The women would put on like little hearts, heart shaped birthmarks. I was, I was, I was talking with one of my older students about this story. I didn't actually, you know, have her reading it, but I was saying Marilyn Monroe. You know, she doesn't always have that birthmark in a lot of early pictures. Uh, I'm not sure that it's a real one, but He's, oh, like if you, you see beauty her beauty mark, you mean the beauty beauty mark, mark right? Yeah. Okay, right. So uh, Marilyn Monroe is uh, is you know sort of lionized as or was as you know the the beauty, mm-hmm. um, or at least the certain kind of beautiful woman, right? Right. Um, at least that you know the everyday man's beautiful woman, the the one that the president wants to have sex with, right? Right. Oh, no um, question. <laughs> so the question now is, is does the beauty mark harm her face? And I would say no, right? Yeah. Um, you know, in they, fact, does it distinguish her as being more beautiful? And that's sort of asked in the story as well. I would argue, though, that th- those beauty marks are always near the mouth. I don't think anyone would ever put one in the center of the cheek. Yeah, I, or, or I can't quite explain why that's a problem, but I yeah. think it is. I I think you're right, but it, it it's very this is a very strange story. But I think it might be doing something like I think this is why. Did you read uh, supernatural horror literatures? Uh, the Lovecraft take on Nathaniel Hawthorne. No, no, I'm sorry. Oh, it's okay. I got um, it on he, my Kindle. He he goes on and on about House of the Seven Gables, and when you read the description he has of the House of the Seven Gables, you say. Really? That, after you're reading the book, you say, that's not what the book's about. Um, and it is, actually, his take on everything is really interesting, because he, he he sort of meditates on uh, some sort of aspect of a story that's there, but yeah. that's not what the author themselves are are obsessed with. Right. So supernatural horror and literature is more about the supernatural horror than it is about the, you know, the traditional literature because mm-hmm. he's, he's picking out the things that he finds most interesting mm-hmm. and that he puts in. Lovecraft is really good at mood. And this is, this is, uh, exploring a mood, right? You know, so doing that thing, I think that Hawthorne is doing something like that here. It's sort of a meditation on obsession with, with uh, with a birthmark or some mm-hmm. sort of bodily, because uh, if if you know we were talking before this podcast started about how to research this story, and it, there's just way too much stuff, and not all of it's amateur uh, in what I would say is amateur that I could find, and it, it's all talking about basically a set of three or four different kinds of analyses. Um. And most of them, I would say, are uninteresting. They're, you know, this is about sexual obsession. It's really about sex. They've just been married. And, and when her face turns red, it's like, okay, well, but it doesn't really work that way. If you, if you really, you, you can pick out individual parts of the story and say, look, they're all sort of related to sex. Mm-hmm. But because there's so little action in the story and the way Hawthorne tells his story, we see the same sort of scene or thought process 
like three or four different ways. He wants every different possible angle on that scene or that thought. So we see it from Elmer's perspective. Uh, we see it from the narrator's perspective. We see it from Georgiana's perspective. We even get it from Aminadab's perspective. And none of those are one thing. They're not all obsessed in one area about which analyses what, what is the one he's pointing us to. It's more like there's a ton of uh, sitting in obsession and seeing as, as a result, you know, she dies. It's It just feels very not like it can be analyzed and just have one reaction come out of it. And maybe that's the problem that uh, your wife was having with, with that teacher, right? Is that, yeah, well, Freudianism is, it's a thing, right? Especially after Freud in texts, you can totally see people using right. it. Yeah. But here it doesn't work as if, because I, I don't think, I don't think Hawthorne is all that prudish. I don't see him as being, I mean, I know he's in a prudish society, but I don't think he himself is all that prudish. Yeah, I, that's so an I interesting think, question, because he was pretty extreme introvert, right? Yeah. I don't know. To me, the, the, the theme of the story is pretty obvious, and I'm wondering if, if other people that you looked at, uh, other analyses, said this. Uh, to me, it's the pursuit um, what, it, how far can you go in the pursuit of perfection in a fallen world? Yeah. And uh, I, um, I've, seen, I've seen that too. Yeah. yeah to, I mean, isn't that, isn't that, wouldn't yeah, you people, agree? It says in the story that it's a mark of original sin, right? Mm -hmm. Um, that's right. where the word sin first comes in. And I'm thinking, well, but the original sin is, is it's, it's knowledge, right? The wanting knowledge. That's the way I see original sin as being. It's not like, you know, now they're shamed for their sexuality or anything like that. No, but yeah, it, a certain kind of knowledge. Of knowledge. It's, just, it's, it's just wanting knowledge. A certain kind of knowledge. Well, I don't see it. The knowledge of good and evil. Uh, I guess. Yeah. It, it, this is the this is the tree of good and evil knowledge. Is that how it goes? It's the it's the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, mm. which I think is the which humans can only know evil uh, completely by experiencing it. I would say that that, that common interpretation is not right, and the reason is it's the sin of disobedience, right? Oh, sure. Yeah. And that, that, yeah. Um, and you you. Now, Adam and Eve saying, I want to know for myself and not just listen to my mom and dad's inter interpretation of how things actually are sure. saying, yeah. So w w when Aylmer is what he's doing is, you know, this is what makes him a mad scientist in the same way that uh, Frankenstein is a mad scientist. He wants, to, he, by the way, they're reading the exact same books, right? Um, uh, it, Aylmer it, and Georgiana are you no Frankenstein, Frankenstein and Aylmer. 
uh, Paracelsus, oh, okay. uh, and the the other alchemists, right? Uh-huh. They're all they're reading the same books. Um, this is this is also a thing that I get obsessed with, and I probably said it on the podcast a bunch of times, including on our Frankenstein show, or maybe that's where I got it from. Uh, is that the proce- the process of creating a man in Frankenstein is not uh, one of going to the graveyard and digging up some bones and. St- and uh, flesh and sewing them all together. That's not how Frankenstein's creature is created. He's created through an alchemical process. Right, the lightning bolt, right? Well, uh, actually... In the, in the movie, or...? There are, there's a lightning bolt in, in, in the book, mm-hmm. but it's, uh, it, it destroys the family tree at the beginning. And Galvani is mentioned, um, which is fine, Right. But uh, it's probably it's not described in the book, right? It doesn't okay. say you know goes to the graveyard and he digs up some corpses and then he sews them together. That's all in the movie. Um, mm-hmm. I see. But he, he, we do know that he works long hours in his in his garret laboratory um, okay. after having you know gone to school. They're doing like corpsey dissection. But so are you saying there's no grave robbing? There's no grave robbing at all in the book? I no, there's no that. grave robbing in there, the book. I had no idea. Oh, that's a stop. Well, I mean, presumably the teachers are doing a grave, you know, somebody procuring the bodies for the for the medical classes that he's right. not attending are doing <laughs> grave robbing. But he is he's obsessed with, with Paracelsus. And, and if you look into alchemy, it's very interesting. Um, I... I think I heard uh, in our time on alchemy or something uh-huh. uh, that was very interesting. It, 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 the reason everybody like Newton even was obsessed with alchemy is not because it's, you know, they, they're so interested in gold. They want to turn everything into gold. That's, that's, a, that's, the, that's the funding way you explain it to when you're, when you're a alchemist, right? Uh-huh. And you, you want to get funding for your alchemy. Uh-huh. You, you go to the the king of your kingdom or the prince of your princedom, right? right and right. say, "Okay, I have a I have an idea that I might be able to do something very interesting in science." Just and like the um, in the modern era, when you? It, when yeah. you're writing a grant in the modern era, you drop in the little, "Oh, and this oh. might lead to a cure for cancer." Exactly, <laughs> exactly. And how long has that swindle worked? By the way, uh, I'm reading the 1917 magazines this week. And guess what they're driving for? Cure for cancer. <laughs> it's, yeah, yeah. It's, it's, it's nothing new. Yeah, well, um, alchemy is, is a fully developed um, religion, or at least metaphysical uh, system. Well, it's, there's something going on there. And w- what they were so obsessed with is that you could get really interesting things. Um, do you know the story... Um, uh, the Cask of Amontillado by Edgar Allan Poe. Everybody yes. knows this, right? Yes. Okay. Well, one of the things that's in there, I think it was um, uh, Eric S. Rabkin who pointed this out to me. I could be wrong. Um, that is in there. That's a throwaway line that we don't we don't think about very much, um, but is mentioned a, a couple of times. Is the niter the niter? It grows. You remember that? No. Okay, so they're going down into the underground uh, catacombs, right? Yeah. And uh, what's the Fortunato? Uh, is that I can't remember the two guys' names. Montresor, no. 
Fortunato. One of the one of the two of them is coughing. I guess it's the guy who's about to die. He's coughing, and uh, the other guy says, "Oh, it's the niter. It grows." And is he here? Take some wine, right? And I can't. De Grave is the name of the wine. So really fun story. Anyway, <laughs> um, there's this line about the niter and how it's you know it's it's giving him the coughs. Hmm. Well, niter is something Lovecraft's also obsessed with. It's it's basically bird shit or something like the saltpeter, basically oh, growing, okay. I see. growing on the stone in the caverns mm. underneath this city mm-hmm. and it grows because it grows in the shape of like basically plants it moves it it, it literally does grow it it's it, it's crystals are forming right yeah, yeah yes it's it's a process of a chemical process of what looks like living material yeah. right mm-hmm. sort of moving in a direction in the same way that plants move towards light niter moves uh, except it moves down. Mm-hmm. And in al- alchemy, what you would do is you would you would be able to grow what looked like human-shaped creatures inside of bottles. Mm. By adding certain chemicals together, mm-hmm. there would be sort of cr- crystalline-style growths. Mm-hmm. And they would look like there is the man, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> so that that's where we get the the Frankenstein. So these guys are not like... They're not just Looney Tunes for gold, right? Right. They are Looney Tunes for the power that mm-hmm. this weird science can bring. Yes. Bring them. He, no, the, 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 has the, so many chemicals that can do all these powerful things, right? He says, he, I've, I've got this one that'll, uh, this poison that can kill men uh, slowly or very quickly. There's a wonderful, um, uh, yes. Um, at, 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 if you go back far enough, chemistry and alchemy are the same thing. Mm-hmm. If you go back far enough, um, um, psychology and the occult are are the same thing. It's mm-hmm. it, it's analogous, and that's not very well. They known. come out. One comes out of the other. Yeah, I, yeah I it's think- the same impulse. You're just seeking knowledge and the power that knowledge gives you. And at some point. Alchemy was finally abandoned because it didn't work, and that's the only reason it was abandoned. Well, I'm not sure. I'm not. Uh, that's the sort of standard line on it. But the main difference between alchemy and and science is actually openness, right? So, oh, he's you know she says um, uh, she starts reading this sorcerer's book, right? Oh, he calls it the sorcerer's book. Mm-hmm. His lab notes, his his experimental, his ex, all his experiments, and he he seems to be a powerful scientist, powerful natural philosopher. That we he's on he's not one of the ones we know, so whatever. But the important part is all the name drops in there. Those are like sort of secret books, examples of the of the few people who actually did share mm. in some sort of secret way. Well, their materials in the medieval but, era, you know, only a few people could so- even read. So with the, with the royal society, yeah. right? It, okay. They go the exact opposite. Yeah. We don't care about your provenance. We only care that your results are reproducible mm-hmm. in a royal society experiment. Right. Okay. Now, you're, that's an excellent point, because that is an aspect of alchemy is the esoteric, it's esoteric and it's passed down by the master 
disciple. And so it's this chain. And uh, that's part of the arrogance inherent in it is I I was selected by the master. Right. I am going to be the one entrusted with this knowledge. I must be an exceptional person. So, yeah, what Harry Potter does is, is get science into the schools, right? So that uh, the science of magic into the schools. You go to, uh, Harry goes to what, what like a uh, potions class and then right, he goes to, right. and then they, they go to the library and they get all the books out. This is something, uh, notice that even so there's all these muggles that have to be, otherwise the whole world's completely magicked, right? Right. There has, there has to be these, these muggles who are us who don't understand it. But this is sort of the fundamental flaw in, in Harry Potter's uh, regularization of magic mm-hmm. is that if you regularize it, then it's not really magical. So she right. she's managed to have her cake and eat it too, right? Yeah, and, and that the muggles are either dimly aware or completely unaware of the whole magical realm. We're completely oblivious somehow. Oblivious, yeah. Probably ma- magically oblivious. Well, the, um, the Harry's relatives, good heavens, what are their names? Uncle, uh, Aunt... Um, the mean guys. You know, yeah, the- they, they are in deep denial because, I mean, they, they have all the facts that they need to know that magic exists. But they, right. because of the deaths and the, the inter-family competition and rivalry and resentment, they have simply chosen... I didn't read past, past the first book. Yeah, apparently, uh, apparently she, uh, Rowling, she, she I, th- I don't necessarily approve of this, but she is like giving backstory and filling in details uh, outside of the, going beyond the canon, and mm. yeah, so apparently she revealed the nature of the rivalry between Harry's aunt and his mother, I believe it was. I'm a little bit uncertain of the details there, but, Mm -mm. but yeah, I think you're completely right. Um, There's the the openness that, that the Royal Society introduced. It was, was a, 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 a massive, I mean, imagine if that had never happened. I mean, People people are naturally greedy, and they're greedy with knowledge as much as with anything else. And it it was it, I don't I'm not sure that really was something that had to have happened in history. This idea that uh, this this ethic of sharing knowledge, which we have in science, yeah, there's a it's, lot of human nature that works, and it didn't work because. It had to. Everything had to be approved, right? So it wasn't like anybody can come and and do a demonstration, right? It, if you if you did the French version, it's like, no, you're not on the list. And mm-hmm. uh, more importantly, um, the king isn't sure. This is the same way the the French dictionary works, right? <laughs> Things are not. Uh, everything has to be approved. It has to go through the process proper process what's so revolutionary about the about the royal society is they've got um yeah lords and sirs and stuff but they'll also take in any old dude who who has some sort of interesting uh thing that he thinks he can he can replicate in in a royal society meeting Mm. and they become it becomes like an obsessive hobby to be open Mm. and then replicable yeah 
And in the same way that, you know, some people get really obsessed about open source. Right, exactly. Uh, or public domain like I do, right? It's like this really helps everybody. And then there's mm-hmm. the, the people who say, no, this is only for us. This is patented. This is copyrighted. This is... Um, so you, you do understand the, we, we do understand the obsession for either side, but it, it in one case, you know, the, the reason that British became so famous for science is largely because this was really self-reinforcing, right? Mm-hmm. And so even an American, even an American can come over, <laughs> a colonial can come over and, yeah. oh, have you heard about this this guy's experiment, this Ben Franklin? He seems to be doing very interesting work. Mm-hmm. And it it really did have a great e- effect. So... Um, there's one other story that uh, this is often compared to. It says in the Wikipedia entry, and I think rightly so. Um, it's called The Oval Portrait by Edgar Allan Poe. It's one of my favorites of his. Have you read that one? No. Oh, it's very short. haven't heard of it's it. Very short. Um, it's very uh, short. I really, really like it for a couple of reasons. One, it's got a, a framing story. That's that's quite long. I think the page is like five-page story. The framing is there story. a pun, a, a literary pun in there somewhere? A framing, uh, 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 the oval yeah, portrait I mean, comes with a be, framing story. He, 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 it's one we're making, right? <laughs> yeah, but what's funny is, is that uh, it's like three to five pages long, and about two thirds of the story is the frame, <laughs> um, and it's all at the beginning. Which doesn't make any sense because a framing story is on both sides of the story. There's the beginning and the end, right? right. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's this premise, you know, guy wanders into a castle. Oh no, uh, a servant takes a a traveler who's been wounded. Doesn't explain how he's been wounded in the Apennines of Italy. Um, uh, breaks. They have to break into a castle. Um, the servant takes him up into this castle, and they find a, a turreted room and put him in the bed, right? And on the on this way, the castle's been completely uh, abandoned and very hastily and very recently abandoned. So we can sort of imagine, like, there's food on the table and the, the food's, like, cooling down. And then, you know, there's candles blown out, but they're, like, you know, there's still smoke rising up from them. So there's that sort of spooky setting, right? And then they lay him down, on the uh, the servant lays him down the main character down on the bed um and there's a pill on the pillow beside his head is a book and in that book is a description of all of the paintings that are on the wall of this room and he becomes obsessed as his his uh servant falls asleep he becomes obsessed with one particular painting which is of an oval uh, an oval portrait of a beautiful young woman and he becomes obsessed with staring at this painting. Then he looks it up in the book and it's just so lifelike, this painting, he says. Right. Mm-hmm. And then he reads the description and that's the rest of the story, which is like about a page and a half. And it's about a painter who uh, paints his wife so beautifully, uh, so well that in the final brushstroke, uh, he kills her. Ah. She sucked the life right out of her and put it into the painting. Mm-hmm. Be- because the painting is so perfect, he so couldn't perfect. Bear, bear living with the... She, she, every brushstroke he, he puts onto the, paint, onto the canvas, 
is taking life out of her. Oh, oh so she just dies then as she a, dies as a, as, a result of, yeah. as a consequence of him doing the painting so well. I see. Now, this what's funny is this is sort of a gothic story, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. There's no science in it at all. It's just sort of spooky, ghosty well, story. Well, you gothic horror can can have science science fiction elements. I mean, the, the, uh, the yeah, sort the, of the uh, one of the standard tropes of gothic horror is that the evil wizard or the mad scientist is destroyed by the very uh, power that he unleashes. Or in this case, I, you would presumably his life is ruined. If I hope, I would assume that he's disappointed in his wife's death. Or does how yeah. aware of it that is he that the painting <laughs> is killing her? What's fu- what's funny is that the framing story in that story doesn't explain why, you know, why the castle was abandoned. We oh. can sort of speculate, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. As so, what happened is he just finished painting the painting, put it up on the on the wall, runs over to the book, fills in the details, then freaks out and runs out of the castle. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, no, that doesn't quite work. Hey, this is a little bit of a precursor to the portrait of Dorian Gray, too. It is. Um, I I thought you were going to contrast the perfection of the painting with the imperfection of the of the subject. Yeah, well, that's another way to go, right? Yeah, that's another way. Exactly. And, and that's and the that's, way. Uh, yeah, we just did a show on Dorian Gray. Did you right. know that? Yeah, I was. Um, I was tweeting all these alternate um, titles or ah, that's right. to that's right. Dorian Gray. Well, that that'll or, come out time, and uh, yeah, it was a, it's an interesting. Well, Here's my question about okay. the ending when when Georgiana dies, is 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 Hawthorne saying that that particular particular cure failed, or is he saying that her flaw is intrinsic to herself in such a way that any removal of the birthmark would have killed her? Was Aylmer's attempt doomed from the beginning? I think we're, I think that that's what Hawthorne's going for is that yeah it was foolish. Amina I, I Dab says something like if if she were mine, mm. um, I would it wouldn't bother me at all. Right. <laughs> yes. Um, so and that if if it was doomed from the start, then that would reinforce the idea that the birthmark is original sin, in the sense that we can never hope to remove. Yeah, uh, the evil impulses I, again. Yeah, again, evil nature the, from ourselves I, completely. This is this is another reason why, like, yeah, I don't get this story because yeah. even if even if it works symmetrically in that way, it doesn't resonate with me, right? It's like yeah, yeah can't escape original sin. It's like I, I didn't I didn't see the original sin as a sin. I think it I think it's the actual smartness is that we we don't try. My mom, when I was a kid, I I thought my mom was was. She just knew everything, and I was right. She she knew a ton. Uh, very unusual uh, to have a person that smart be your mom, because she did. She's not she's not read every book on the planet, but she's very canny. She you know she she did have a lot of answers. She was a teacher. Mm-hmm. She she had the one of the most important uh, features that a teacher can have. She can control children. Mm-hmm. Uh, not by physical violence, but through uh, just a force of will. Right. right? She right. has the power to, and because she knows stuff, she doesn't just, you know, some teachers just make it up and yell. She doesn't <laughs> have to yell. She just has 
the power. She has what you know uh, Muad'Dib had. He had the voice. She she has the voice, right? She can make people. So she, I'm sorry, she has what? Who? What? Muad'Dib, you know, from Dune. Oh, oh, oh uh, the, Paul, the the yes. It's trained by the Bene Gesserit, right, um, right. Bene Gesserit mother with the voice, which is a power contr- to control people and suggest things and make them happen. Yeah. Um, she has kind of what Steve Jobs has, the uh, uh, reality distortion field. Right? <laughs> um, the ability to uh, make people believe that things can get done and that actually makes things get done. You know, she can start businesses that are successful. She can, you know, move mountains as long as they're not physical mountains, but uh, intellectual mountains amongst individuals. Um, she has that power. So when I... As I was growing up, I, you know, would turn to her uh, for authority and advice, and I would often find it correct. And then slowly creeping into my mind over the centuries of my growth, I found that she was not always right about everything. Mm. And this is a, like a profound revelation to me. It's like, huh, she can be wrong about stuff, and she doesn't always know all the answers to things. Mm-hmm. And... This is this is like sort of crept into my. She uh, she says uh, I learned it in university. I don't think that's right. I think I got it in university because I study philosophy mm. and critical thinking. Right, like saying, well, why is it that that is the way it is that you say it is? Why, mm-hmm. wh- so vitamins, you know, like my mom likes vitamins. Vitamins are bullshit, man. <laughs> I looked it up. Um, uh, hey, don't I mean, yeah, ever, don't ever say a negative word about fish oil, though, or you'll have me to answer to. Uh, I don't. I haven't studied, and I think we talked about fish oil. Yeah, I mentioned it, it. It revolutionized my. It, it woke up parts of my brain that had been asleep right. my entire life. Um, uh, what what I can tell you is that uh, people take a lot of supplement vitamins right. Right. Yes. and they pee them out uh, because they are, they are already getting sufficient yes. vitamins, right? Um, in we, fact, have the, we have the world's... Uh, Amer- uh, North America has the world's most expensive urine. Yes, very expensive urine. Um, so, yeah, there's all sorts of things that... Uh, so, people like my sister say, what about this? And I'll say, yeah, I looked it up, no. You know, like, <laughs> you just go to Wikipedia and read it up for yourself. And if, if, if you know how to read Wikipedia properly, and there's lots of citations, you can follow those citations and look at those yeah. and see what they say, right? Mm-hmm. So it isn't like, it, this is, this is what I think is wrong with, with, you know, religion is that it says, no, just take it on authority, right? And the thing is, is there is great wisdom in relying on old books. Mm-hmm. to tell you about the world because people a long time ago were incredibly intelligent. The ones that managed to get books written were often incredibly intelligent. Not all of them, right. but right. the vast majority of people who wrote books mm-hmm. had an education and were able to write those books down. Yeah. And so even in, you know, uh, stories from, you know, the, the bronze age uh, that people treat as, um, you know, holy texts, those have great wisdom in them, even if they are, uh, yeah, they're not meant to be taken literally. They're great resources, and we should observe them. But don't just do that. Don't just pick one book. You know, that's what I think of religion as is, is kind of like a, it's a book club where you're only going to ever read one book. And 
And most of the people in the book club actually don't even read the, the actual book. They just heard that somebody read the book and then they, they listen to that guy and say, yeah. My, my, you are so cynical. You disappoint me, <laughs> is, that, is that cynicism or is that well, a, a, uh, wisdom, I my friend? I think there's a little more going on. That's no, no, I'm not saying everybody in that yeah, good. group does, but uh, I mean, a lot of people are. Um, a lot well, of people go to the church and then they don't read the book that week, right? They didn't read it last week, they're not reading it this week, and they're look, just taking one guy's point of view who's up on the lectern. Well, th- there, there is this curious um, phenomenon, which is that people tend to be extremely loyal at least in a nominal way to the uh, organized religion that they're raised in. And so um, I guess because I somewhat broke away from my parents, um, I feel like I have a lot of, uh, I I don't have to be embarrassed. Uh, My own religious opinions don't embarrass me because I didn't just automatically inherit them from Mm. my parents. Now, Mm. From the outside, you would look at me and say, oh, your beliefs and your parents are extremely similar. But you know how things work within highly uh, uh, highly committed, um, more, uh, well, I'll use the word fundamentalist belief systems. The small differences become, it's the, it's the, what do they call it? The narcissism of small differences. You're familiar with that term? No, no, it sounds fun though. Yeah. And so, so these, these, the more committed, you know, whether it's the Puritans or fundamentalists or certain groups, they, once they break away from them, like say Protestants breaking away from Catholicism, for example, Mm-hmm. They tend to be very vulnerable to ever more splintering sure. into smaller and smaller groups. Because that's it's a group of revolutionaries that got a revolt. Yeah, yeah, and it's it's I'm I'm a Puritan, I'm a purist, and you know being pure in doctrine is what we're all about, and therefore uh, you're I'm not going, literally uh, a Puritan, right? Because there are no actual Puritans left. I I is my understanding. No, no, but but the the Puritan that um kind of motivation when purity of doctrine is a, is a major a major aspect of your religion. So my, my only point is from the outside it would not look to you like I moved very far. But um, from within the group I'm definitely uh, viewed with some suspicion in my family. Okay, because for, for one thing, for one thing I'm, I'm a squish on the subject of evolution for example. I have a lot of uh, young Earth creationists in my family, and so uh, so I I have definitely you know uh, it would be would have been very easy for me to bite my tongue and just gone along on that topic and others. Where <laughs> the I, young Earth creationism topic, yeah, yeah just uh-huh. just don't don't mention it. Just you know, just say nominally, you know, for out, outward appearances, and that's what a lot of people do, even if they're not particularly religious. They tend to just go along, you know. That's why, you know, Catholicism is almost like an ethnicity for some people. Yeah, and that it, is. And, it's and, an and identity. You, and you talk to them, and, and it's clear that they don't, they couldn't, they couldn't give a, a detailed defense of the 
of their supposed beliefs. You know, they're uh, like dependent. They, they know what they are, even if they don't know what the, they can't uh, make a list of them right. <laughs> because because they subscribe. Right, they're subscribers to yeah. the group. Well, we're getting way off. Topic, but but the the, the no, phenomenon so. you're talking about is is unquestionable. It's not that far off topic because. Uh, for you, I, I'm assuming this story had more resonance than it did for me. For no, me, I, 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 I sort of, I say, oh, I see what he's doing there, and that's basically, yeah, it, it's sort of a sort of a stopgap in between, you know, H.G. Wells and and uh, Mary Shelley. But I would say that it, it's not, it, it doesn't seem to have progressed a whole lot since Mary Shelley, like the. The science fiction's origins are very murky. Mm-hmm. Right? People po- usually point to Frankenstein, but the way Frankenstein plays out is more gothic than it is science fiction. The, because the actual science is just okay. Imagine if we could do this, right? Right, and and notice that everybody thinks it's electricity, uh, <laughs> and there is electricity in the book. It's, Galvani is specifically mentioned. Mm-hmm. He's a science guy, right? He did use electricity, mm-hmm. and there's a lightning bolt at the beginning of the book. And but I mean, at the end, it, we're reminded not of science. We're reminded of Dante, right? Mm-hmm. With the frozen statue of of uh, what is Satan in uh, oh, yeah. Lucifer, frozen in the ice, right? Of, right. Um, that's not that's not science, right? That's sort of gothic uh, yeah. well, ghost story. Yeah. And she yeah. she explicitly wrote it to be a ghost story, mm. um, but uh, in the same way that Lovecraft's writing, you know, sort of of his era's science. And, and that's the, what she's writing about. And the uh, the uh, I think there's a kind of obsession with original sin, or you know, uh, the 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 monster specifically addresses. Uh, Frankenstein, you are my creator. But of course, yes. Frankenstein's tragic flaw is his creator is this crappy, ordinary, flawed human being, not not yeah, he's, perfect he's got god of the universe. Terrible yeah. obsessions. In in essence, that's the connection between the two. Is is he's obsessed with with overcoming death? His mom dies, mm-hmm. um, and he just becomes obsessed with defeating death and and in basically that's their both of the that's a, a good connection between the two books because or the story in the book because his his obsession ends up killing uh him and his wife and a bunch of things through a chain of consequences of of being too in love and that this goes back to what the th- another theme of the story is is being too in love with science over being mm-hmm. uh more moderate in your your stuff. So, uh, for me, um, it's like, uh, I would say what he's saying is something like is don't drink too much. <laughs> That's basically, he's mm. yeah, like, science isn't bad. It's just don't get obsessed with it to the extent of, you know, doing experiments on people in concentration camps, right? You know, that's, that's, that's too much because that's inappropriate and it's too much. This is very, I've been reading about, about how the Greeks had, uh, they had these symposia, right? The parties where they would have drinking parties. Mm-hmm. Um, and what was really interesting is we think of them as like a whole bunch of Greek guys getting drunk and, 
and, uh, you know, talking about their wives or something who are not allowed to attend the party. And that is essentially it, except what people don't understand about this that I think I didn't understand this most interesting is that they were so obsessed with the host and the guest being in the right kind of drunk, not too drunk. Mm. Because that is that is a show of bad character and not not drunk enough. Oh, I thought you were saying they were going for alcohol's mind expansion. Uh, they they were for okay. first, for for because a little bit of alcohol will cause people to become more social, right? Right, and to be more expansive and to tell you the truth. <laughs> Would you become you your certain um inhibitions break down as you know uh Hemingway supposedly said and I don't think he actually did um write drunk and edit sober the idea mm-hmm. is when you're doing your in your uh brainstorming mode right. you want to be a little bit loose and and crazy mhm and well so the greeks yeah they're, they're what they're saying is that the host's job is to make sure that the guests don't don't uh, aren't given the wrong mix of. Remember how uh, if you read the Odyssey, they're always talking about wine, 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 dark sea, mm-hmm. over and over again. Um, but also uh, mixing water with wine. They didn't right. drink. They never drank their wine straight. Well, the wine was preserved, uh, kind of boiled down. So it, it was. was kind of a jelly. You, it was fortified sort of yeah. wine, right? Uh, yeah, but, and and um, uh, someone who they, just wanted to get plastered would drink unmixed wine. But that would show that it, that would be like the greatest sign that you're not a man, right? Is it's, that you get plastered? Yeah, right? it's 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 a, a sign of alcoholism, right? You're, you no, would, not to no. See, for us, we say, oh, uh, you know, he's just a stupid kid, and he's he's an alcoholic and all that right, stuff. Right. But actually, what their their whole thing was, isn't this amazing wine magically interesting? Because it can too much of it will make you a stupid fool, mm-hmm. and a, just the right amount will make you uh, a great artist, mm-hmm. right? So their whole thing, this is, you know, their uh, their obsession was not with sin and avoiding sin and being virtuous, but was actually in finding the moderate moderation between um, too little of something and too much of something. Yes. Right. And so that, I think, is kind of what Nathaniel Hawthorne is doing, because he he believes in sin. He believes that people can do wrong because if you read the Scarlet Letter, he's sort of accusing everybody who's accusing her mm-hmm. of being, you know, too interested in other people's sexual uh, uh, stuff, right? Mm-hmm. That they are, and, or if you read, you 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 did read the House of the Seven Gables. Mm-hmm. I mean, Hepzibah, I don't know what she's sinning about. What she's, what's her sin? I think it in that book is a one. lot of. Um, you know, inheriting, like original sin is something you inherit from your parents. And so there's like a family curse. But no, Hepzibah is just kind of a loser. But well, I don't, I, I don't I, think there was, was any very, sin. I was very sympathetic to this poor old lady who, you know, is her her great her great sin was to maybe uh, make gingerbread and make money. Oh, my God. No, no. Yeah, yeah. I No, I agree. I, I, I am agreeing with you that she does not appear to have any particular... Um, she's she's without sin, is my opinion. She, okay. uh, her sin is probably being too worried about sin. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> not, it's not, but 
Um, on the other hand, you know, the, the judge, uh, with the dramatic, uh, uh, how, how's, how's the curse go? May your you mouth will, be, you will eat blood. Oh, yeah, right. Um, it, it's, it's heavy, right? <laughs> it's heavy stuff. Um, and the scarlet letter, you know, to sh- publicly shame a woman for adultery, that's a little much is what he's saying. I yeah. And well, so, yeah, it's it's sort of about moderate, you know, being moderate with your casting of sin. Mm-hmm. I think I think Hawthorne is probably a lot like you in that you, you're you're still going with the Christianity thing, but you don't like the version that they had. Right. <laughs> the, well, that the family had because it was just too... Uh, accusatory of everybody. My understanding is Jonathan, uh, I'm sorry, uh, John Wesley was, uh, ha- you know, uh, had had this understanding that if you get your Methodist society together and you've got everybody encouraging one another to live the uh, right way, what's going to happen as a natural product is people are going to get wealthier. Because there's less cheating going on, less stealing, you, you mm-hmm. know, you know. And so, so you've got this society that's functioning in a healthy way, and then people get rich, and then the wealth corrupts you, and then another generation comes along, yeah. which is, you know, indolent, self-indulgent, and so there's this probably this right horrible, about that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So there's this horrible. Um, you know, vicious circle where you're just, your society is just naturally going to fall into decadence. And his solution was, uh, when you make your fortune because you're living right and you're, you're, particularly the, 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 the Protestant worth ethic is kicking in. You give away, you, you, you give away your fortune. You make sure that you don't accumulate very much. And I think, yeah, I think that's, Probably a good idea. I was, uh, one of the things I was doing with my student last last week was uh, reading about Guggenheim. You know Guggenheim, the right. guy, the art guy. Um, he made all his money in oil. Mm-hmm. Um, his father was rich as well. Um, I don't remember how his father got rich. Maybe it wasn't in the biography, but uh, he was obsessed with oil. Uh, not obsessed. He made his all, all his monies with oil, and then when he had kids. Um, he was very stingy. Mm-hmm. And then uh, when his grandson got kidnapped, um, he refused to pay the uh, ransom. Oh, man. Um, and then his son, uh, who's, you know, the father of the, of the grandson, mm-hmm. uh, says, Dad, come on, pay. And he says, well, how about this? I'll give you a loan. <laughs> um <laughs> And I'll only charge you 4% interest. Um, <laughs> and when he died, when Guggenheim died, he, he instead of giving, you know, some money to his kids, he left it all to art. Mm, yeah. And that's why there's a museum called the Guggenheim mm-hmm. uh, and, you know, this art collection. That's, well, there are Guggenheim but fellowships. There's, that, that uh, yeah, but, right. But there's all of these. This, uh, uh, Carnegie, same story. Yeah. Right. Um, and there's like uh, Rockefeller. There's tons of these sort of these billion, billionaire Puritan American work ethic guys, you know, come up, uh, mm-hmm. make their billions out of exploiting. Well, <laughs> you know, horrible. You, uh, mining how, conditions and 
Have you read The Diamond Age by uh, Neil Stevenson? Oh, no, I haven't. That is my favorite, all-time favorite mm. science fiction novel. And It's a big one, right? Yeah, it's not as big as some of them, but um, he, he does tend to write long. They've got these neo-Victorians, and that's why I love it so much. It's because I would love to... Uh, any science fiction book that creates a world that I would love to move to. <laughs> so these neo-Victorians, they ride around on these mechanical horses, mm-hmm. and they are struggling to recreate the best of the Victorian society without falling in the old traps of the hypocrisy and mm-hmm. the the snobbery and uh, you know everything else. So one of these... Uh, Neo-Victorians, I can't remember his name, but he's actually Asian, but he's a lord. And he's obsessed with this very problem. How do we, we have successfully engineered a a society, which is giving us great wealth. Now, how do we raise the next generation so they're not a bunch of spoiled brats? And what he decides to do is create a book. It's called a book, but it's essentially a supercharged Kindle ah. and it's got an AI inside it. That, and it it's the book is basically going to raise his granddaughter only the book gets lost and then it lands in the hands of somebody else. And then the mm. whole, it's a fascinating novel. It's mm, called diamond age because they have matter compilers where everybody's got a little box in their house, which looks like mm-hmm. a microwave. But there are tubes running into it, which are pumping elements, you know, oxygen, carbon, hydrogen. Star Trek's replicator. And, and, and yeah, and then it, anything you want, you just, you know, request it and you wait a certain amount of time. If, if you want, everyone's got one in their house. If you want to just eat green sludge that's healthy but disgusting you know, that has all the nutrients you need, it will give that to you for free. And so there's this underclass of mm. people who, who don't work at jobs and are content to to live. Eat sludge. <laughs> eat sludge. And, you know, and of course they get into all kinds of trouble. There are, you know, drug addiction and the whole thing. Um, but if you want to work and, and earn money, then you can, you can um, pay for the really good stuff like, for example, window panes made out of pure diamond. And so um, you've got these um, people uh, who refuse to, they want, you know, these, these hipsters who want everything handmade. And their houses have glass in the window panes. And so when a kid is visiting one of these houses, someone warns them. Now remember, these window panes will break and they will cut you. So, you know, don't assume that they are made out of pure diamond. And uh, I'm, I'm, get, I'm kind of rambling now, but um, this, is, this is the, this is the uh, thing that I find fascinating is the question of how you raise the next generation in a wealthy society. Because let's remember, we are not only the wealthiest society that has ever existed. We are literally unimaginably wealthy. Um, you know, kings and lords in the Middle Ages could not imagine the the conveniences that we enjoy. 
or the healthcare. Or the healthcare, but but computers, internet, cars, mm-hmm. automobiles, all that. I mean, to them, yeah, they no, thought, oh, you get richer, you just hire. You get richer, you just hire more servants, and you big live in a bigger castle, which is still drafty and cold in the winter. Mm-hmm. But no, we, um, you know, we've taken it away. So I think, um, you know, you look at look at what's happening in Japan right now, where you've got uh, huge numbers of young people who are just dropping out of society. The the what are they called? The people who just live lock, shut themselves in their bedroom and on the I'm internet sure. all the time. Otaku, otaku is is the people who like comics, I think. Right, the fan, yeah, the obsessive fandom. Uh, but then there's this large number of young adults who say that they are completely uninterested in sexual relationships. You know, they don't want to get married. They don't even want girlfriends. This is very funny because I, I, one of the things I I did a search on to, to because I was having difficulty doing research on this. Mm-hmm. I, I did I searched. I found this to be kind of interesting is you search on Twitter and you see what people uh, are saying. Most, mostly uh, it's garbage, but there's a lot of smart people on Twitter too. <laughs> a lot of, a lot of really not smart people. But uh, one of the things that uh, I found was um, uh, Richard Dawkins had asked a question. What is a, the best science fiction short story that you had read? And uh, that was Nathaniel Hawthorne's The Birthmark was one of the answers. Really? Uh, yeah, which is interesting because I'm not sure it's science fiction. But then I, I thought, oh, that's an interesting question. And so I started looking at the answers and uh, <laughs> I just came away shaking my head as I usually do when I confront regular regular reality of the regular people's interests and such. Most of the because he's a famous guy, uh, he has a lot of followers, I guess. Um all of his, uh, most of the people who answered didn't even know what a short story was. They were, they were, you know, giving book, book, full-length novels as oh, an okay. answer, and mm-hmm. um, you know, somebody said the the Black Cloud by Fred Hoyle. That's a novel. You know, like, mm-hmm. um, so I was like, okay, well, there must be some short stories on the list, and like the same four or five uh, stories came up over and over again. Uh, Asimov's The Last Question, which is a fine story. <laughs> um, you know, a whole bunch of ones like that and The Birthmark. And, and I, I was just realizing, yeah, people don't read short stories, right? You, you, you know, you and I are occasionally reading them. Uh, novels are really the only thing people do read, except in school, they are, you know, force fed a little bit of short stories, yeah. uh, often yeah. Edgar Allan Poe. But, um, so the, <laughs> The upshot is, uh, yeah, it's not really a science fiction story is what I would say, but it is, it, it's interesting. And I'm not sure it is anything else either. It's not really gothic-y. It's sort of gothic-ish. Oh, see, that this idea of things hanging back on you and that you, you set in motion the very thing that's going to destroy Yeah, it's got that mad scientist thing. Yeah, that's gothic. On. That's gothic-y. And it's, I think uh, no. it's science-y and gothic-y. I'm not sure it's, you know. Yeah, it, it's it's like the, you know, there's there was a ton of mad scientist stories. One of my favorites is Microcosmic God uh, by Theodore Sturgeon, one of his early mm-hmm. stories. You read that one? It's really no. good. Um, it's in Astounding. It's it's not so good as it in the writing, but in the, it, it's a guy who invents a world. Um, I wanted to 
this that was actually one of the reasons uh, I wanted to make get audiobooks made is that story because I thought it would be a great audiobook, but uh, it's still under copyright. Anyways, um, the story is about a guy who who uh, is a great inventor like Elmer. Uh, you know, he can create wonders. And he's so good at it, uh, but he knows he's going to die, so he invents a race of creatures, uh, neoterics, I think is what he calls them, um, that he, that live at sort of an increased speed than we do. And he puts them inside of like a jar. Of course. Uh, and yes. They're tiny. Um, and then <laughs> he subjects them to stress, uh, like x rays and a giant, like, a giant clamp coming down to crush them, right? And then he he uses a microscope to extract their inventions to create uh, real-world inventions. So, like, so he's stealing their ideas. That's exactly right. He's got a like this clamp <laughs> coming down to crush them. They can see that, oh, my God, the world's going to end. The sky is falling, right? So yeah. they, they take the available materials that he gives them uh that he, you know he, raw materials and they they develop like lattice like structures that are much stronger for airframes right yeah. and he sells that and then eventually the government hears gets wind of him and decides that he's he's too uh his inventions are too good to be exclusively his own patent so they're going to tear him down and steal his patents while he just makes the neoterics work even harder and he comes up with like an indefensible or indestructible uh you know uh shield the invisible shield force ray or whatever it is to defend his island off of new york and it, yeah it's like the ultimate mad scientist sort of story um there's not a lot of science in it but it has the sort of right idea about it and it's about an obsession right mm-hmm. yeah so there it, it does follow in this tradition from shelley to to uh sturgeon and and others but it, yeah it's uh, because of the way it's written it's it's much more uh it's much more nathaniel hawthorne than it is anything else mm-hmm. hey there's one more thing i want to mention sure just are you familiar with soma types uh sounds familiar so, but somato- I... somatotypes somatotypes yeah I'm sorry. okay somatotypes. tell me about it Okay, developed in the 1940s by American psychologist William Herbert Sheldon. And basically, he felt that your body type influenced or interacted with your personality. So there Mm. are three types. Right, endomorph, ectomorph, and something else. Yes, so the the ectomorph is the scrawny egghead. And that's Ilmer, definitely, right? They describe okay. his thin, his skinny fingers and pale, you know, pale. Uh, Aminadab is a mesomorph, which right. is He's the, the pra- practical-minded, ath- athletic build, and you're practical-minded. Mm-hmm. The third category is the endomorph, which is the chubby extrovert who's kind of sensual and self-indulgent. That'd be me. Undis- undisciplined. That'd be me, too. Um I'll take your word for it. And no, not really. <laughs> what's fascinating, okay, and so in the 1940s, this guy, he was quite influential. He got, he got, um, position, he got, um, some of the Ivy League schools. This is absolutely mind bending. He got, he was influenced, influential in the Ivy League such that he convinced them 
to take naked photographs of all their incoming freshmen every year <laughs> from a period of time. It lasted well into the 1960s. Scam. So what's scam. incredible. It's like, like looking at naked dudes. Yeah, 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 yeah. So, so you have the, the elite and a, a generation of elites in the United States and somewhere apparently to this day, there's some um, room with a bunch of filing cabinets with naked or near na- nearly naked pictures of these people. Um, you know, maybe maybe their um, you know their crotches are covered with a piece of paper or something. But um, there's apparently a picture of Hillary Clinton somewhere. Huh. She's in there, and and only recently did this this get some attention. And of course, this is this is like uh, you know cabinets full of uh, this is a t- ticking time bomb, right? So, um, and now of course it's completely discredited because the guy was you know like a lot of people who come up with this. It's an idée fixe for him. You yeah, know, he's obsessed. Yeah, but, yeah, yeah. You know, there's something. There's something to it. Well, he's we pointing. Know, we all, I mean, I, I am an ectomorph, scrawny egghead. We all know, you know, the athletic, athletic guys who are just the natural leaders and they tend to be very practical or, you know, just, pro- and they're not particularly intellectual, but, you know, you know, the Ronald Reagans of the world, they're not, they're not really, you don't think of them as smart exactly, but, they seem to be, uh, you know, practical people. And then the the endomorph. Well, you you just confessed your own, you know, thing. It, it kind of makes sense. I don't think that you can completely dismiss this idea, even though I'm not sure exactly what you can. It's not exactly a science. I think. I think. What, what, what can you? What kind, what kind of predictions wrong. can you make? You know. Here's what goes wrong, right? Is that yeah. people think that once you've got a word for something, you understand it. So you say, "Oh, it's just an ectomorph," right? And you say, yeah. "Oh, right." So this is the exact same. Basically, what we're looking at here is astrology, right? Because so a categorization. Say, Pisces, of course, that's how you are, right? Well, but I think I think it is true that your body type does influence your psychology. I mean, uh, if, you, if you are an athlete, if you are bald, broad-shouldered, and athletic, people are naturally going to push you into a leadership role. And that's going to have... And you, then, then you, you are going to find that you are successful in life in being the person who tells everybody else what to do and you're just going to naturally you know the mask you wear the mask long enough and you're pretty soon your face uh, assumes that shape and so i think that people are kind of limited in um you know the possibilities yeah i think there's something to it but i don't think it's a science and you're right. I don't think I don't think that you know you, that, that because there are all kinds of exceptions to these rules. The, the, 
there's so much that comes in, so much junk that comes into academics in the in the 20th century. Uh, <laughs> you know, IQ IQ tests. Oh my God, what a what a waste of time and money. And yet, and yet, they're not completely useless, right? No, they're completely they wrong. Things. No, no, you know what? It's not about even predicting. It's like, okay, yeah. this guy did a really poorly on the IQ test. Well, that's because there is some sort of problem upstairs, right? That yeah. he's not able to do the things that we would like him to you're, be able to do if he's going you, to, you know, be a legally responsible member of adult voting society. You're, right? you're saying they don't really tell you anything that you can figure out just as easily some other way. Well, we wouldn't have that particular label yeah. for it. Right? Or, so, or the fact quanti- that because quantifying because it gives you, you can calculate it to, and you can calculate someone's IQ to any uh, pre, uh, di- uh, digit of precision that you want, but that doesn't, but that's just, you know what I'm saying? Anytime, you say, oh, anytime, th- but anytime that's kind say, of meaningless. I understand yeah. the most complex thing ever cr- created in the universe, the thing between, you know, two human ears is much more complex than our galaxy, right? The connections, right. the number of, of connections going on, the amount of data being stored, the amount of data being filtered. I mean, I don't even understand myself. Uh, I, I, I retroactively say, aha, that's why you said that. Because earlier in the week, you had read this, and that sort of went down into the subconscious. I think subconscious is, you know, one of those few things that came out of out of the, you know, the right, uh, you know, those the psychologists, the early guys, it's like, there, yeah, there, there really is a subconscious for humans anyways. I don't know about for animals, but for humans, there definitely is. There's the consciousness doesn't mm-hmm. explain everything because there's mm-hmm. a lot of stuff going down, down into when it bubbles up to the surface and you can sort of see where it came from. I, I you know, I tweet my dreams. <laughs> um, right. Oftentimes, those dreams are specifically I can see in reading them. Oh, yeah, that's totally you know, because I was reading this other book earlier in the week right, or right. I had that. And it's not always that way, but the subconscious absolutely in my mind exists. And uh, it's completely difficult to understand what's going on down there. By definition. Than, yeah, because it's below the surface. And right. so th- there are lots of cool things that uh, that we've learned, but... It, I took psychology in university, and uh, it was really fun and interesting. Uh, after a certain point, it becomes really boring. And just like all the subjects, after you know, after the first you know one hundred and two level hundred level classes, it basically <laughs> becomes uninteresting because they're just obsessing on the same thing you already studied, right? And and just going over and over again. So it's like the it's like I said, you know, it's the book club that only has one book in it. I don't right, want to well, be a member of that book club. I want to be a different book every week. There's a kind of tragic, uh, you know, if you look at the great courses, I don't know if you've... Yeah, yeah. Uh, I know I've done a few. In fact, that's where yeah. we got Eric from, right? Oh, we, I didn't know that. Yeah. Yeah, he had so, done a great course, and Scott got that, sent it to me, and then I did that, and that was so, Eric's well, class. And, and, of course, I found out about Eric from your podcast and I thought uh-huh. wait a minute this guy is at University of Michigan I looked him up and discovered that there was the you know book discussion club that he started so that's how I mm. got 
I, I came went traveled that direction around. But um, um, so the great courses, the the popular courses are exactly what you're talking about. The survey courses, you know, history of of the Middle Ages, you know, and um, and um, but teachers, professors typically don't aren't that excited about teaching them. Or maybe maybe I'm wrong. Maybe you would say that isn't true, but it depends. It depends on the uh, you know. The, it's it's the more prof- interesting. It's more interesting to discover something, share the thing that you're the expert in, and mm-hmm. so that's the the tendency toward ever greater specialization. Um, and people want to t- teach these esoteric classes with kind of kooky. Um, uh, specializations. Well, I, I found that the best way to learn is to find a really good teacher and to follow that teacher from whatever class to whatever class. So oh, one time, right. I had a, a teacher who he says, "Yeah, because I, 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 I like I went to I went to university for sixteen years, right? I started in nineteen ninety, wow. finished in two thousand six, and you were the, the perennial student. Uh, I loved it." I, I went, you know, mostly in the evenings because I was so working. Who's funding this lifestyle? Me <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and my, uh, you know, I I, I worked, uh, but I also didn't, okay. you know, take five courses every semester. It was more, it was okay. three generally. Well, three that's a good. That's a, I, more people should do that because this idea, oh, yeah. uh, it's a very in retrospect, I'm going to do nothing but learn. That's my job is learning. It's just kind of that's. That's very few people are really psychologically built to do nothing but learn. I think they, so I they're think taught not crazy. to learn. I think they're taught to take tests, <laughs> yeah, taught well, to get marks, and they're taught the not to learn. Tragedy of how do you, how do you evaluate learning, and that's a whole another. Uh, I would say that tragedy. we're doing it wrong. We're, we shouldn't have any. We shouldn't have any sorts of degrees. Think that that's a mistake because uh, honestly, now I, I'm really glad I didn't try and go for a PhD or a master's. I mean, I was totally unsuited for it because I, I would say this is not interesting. I don't want to do this. Mm. I, I wanted to, so I, I took almost every kind of course except for like I didn't take any maths or anything like that. I didn't do chemistry, but I took okay, almost every kind. And I would what I would do is I would find a really good teacher. Um, and I'd say, okay, so what are you teaching next semester? <laughs> and he'd say, oh, it looks like it's going to be. I've never, I've never, never done a philosophy of art. I don't know. I don't know how. I don't even know what to start reading for this. So when I, I said, oh, that sounds good. <laughs> Jesse, I despise, I despise credentialism as much as anybody. But there is the problem. What if you're, if you were a recruiter for a company, how would you hire people? Notice that How would I you would, hire entry level? that I wouldn't be one. What well, I would do okay. is I would talk with them for an hour or two on a podcast. Um, you know what I'm really, really good at? I, I was bragging to a student. I, I made a bet with a student, a new student. I said, I bet I can – we took a particular passage. And after talking with a student for you know half an hour or something, I said, I bet I can guess the exact number and the exact words that are in your vocabulary. And I said, if there was, and I, I did it, and then she, 
she she and we went through it and, and I said you think you don't know this word or you you think you do know this word but you don't <laughs> and we went through the list right and I got the exact number I said you know it, at a carnival and I explained what a carnival was because that was not on her vocabulary list um uh at a carnival you know they had these people who would guess your weight right mm-hmm. <laughs> they do it for money or age. this is this is basically my skill. Is I can tell uh, whether something's going to be in somebody's vocabulary or not mm-hmm. if they're a kid. You know, you're um, talking about giving them a standard vocabulary test and then predicting no, how no, no, they will some, score. Some, some like we'll so you're feeding them words and, and you're thinking this is a no, word like they will know. A, this. We read a story, right? In oh. the first couple paragraphs of a story or something. And you're going to know this and this and this and this, and you won't know this and this and this and this. So I, I find that to be really – that's sort of why I have a good reputation as a teacher amongst the people who keep hiring me to do that. Mm-hmm. Uh, the sort of families trade my name around. Uh, they want their kid to get a you know, better English mark or whatever. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> this is a very weird skill to have. So – what I would say is what you really that credentialism thing, right? It's, it's gamed all the time. And, you know, everybody knows this. Nobody checks to see if, whether you have a high school diploma. I don't, I don't have a high school diploma. Wow. You had to do a math uh, course. And I just said, I'm not, I'm really bad at memorizing, really terrible at it. Um, And so I, I just applied to college (laughs) And I was accepted, and then I went from college to university, and I didn't really have uh, have the trouble. I've subsequently, you know, been able to live my life even not having a grade eleven math or whatever it was that was required. That's a and when I yeah, well, the, nobody checks. Nobody you, you should my you should be in jail. They, you can't get away with that kind of. You can't live that way. <laughs> well, I you know, I I grew up with a complete absolute contempt for institutionalized learning also. Rightly so. But my solution was to just just absolutely do the minimum to get an A minus. I was talking to my son who's 16 and it's kind of funny because he in some ways he's a little bit more um Con- conservative is not quite the right word, but um, traditional or, you know, play by the rules kind of personality mm-hmm. than I have. And I told him, oh, I always if, if I ever got an A in a class, I always felt like I had I had failed because I was <laughs> shooting for an A minus an A minus in my mind was perfectly good, as good as an A. So if I got an A, that meant that I worked too hard and I mis I I overestimated how much work I needed to do, and he was just scandalized, absolutely yeah, shocked. Yeah, but you understand that an A minus in your day—I I don't know quite how old you are, but you're yeah, presumably 53. around three. Yeah. Okay, you're, a little. Yeah, you're, you're absolutely right. You're right. The competition uh, for grades was nothing like it is nowadays. More importantly, if you know, an A minus is, is a C minus today. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Great. There is no, exactly there is that. no, totally. I mean, they're they're, they're completely. Oh, I I don't know the, I don't know how to fix that other than to say uh, it's been broken for 150 years or whatever it is. 
No, we maybe need to, not. We, we need a few professors um, taken out and shot. You make, <laughs> make an example. What did Mussolini do, you know? You're, How did you're he blaming, get the trains you're to run on individuals. It, it's, <laughs> I'll tell you. I'll tell you that the, it's the parents because mm-hmm. I get asked to do things that I know will actually not help the student. Right. And they'll help them, you know, they'll they'll look better. Really good at memorizing so they can they can memorize 50 words for the exam. Right. Uh-huh. And they're, they're, you know, so that they can get through that exam. And if that's if that's really I just don't want to teach that. Uh, there was one job when I was first starting trying to get jobs uh, after I got my university degree and I stopped going to university after, you know, doing it for essentially my adulthood. Right. Uh, I I uh, I got I went to an interview and and he wanted to hire me and I just I said I don't think this is going to work out Be- even though I really needed the money I was you know uh, yeah. <laughs> one of the reasons I needed to graduate from from university was because uh, my business was going down the tubes we 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 had uh, online sales and. Uh, eBay was mostly where we were selling, and mm-hmm. there's just so much competition, uh, mm-hmm. and the market went really crappy. And yeah, U.S. dollar, well. yeah, it, it it went just really badly after a while. So um, th- th- I went <laughs> looking for jobs, and and this guy, he just, you know, he says you just have to intimidate it into the students, <laughs> and I'm like, no, you cultivate it in the students, you you make <laughs> them love it. You don't make them hate it. Oh yeah. Um, but well, that's that that article I told you about from Commentary Magazine, which is how to teach literature. Is you, mm-hmm. he says, what's missing is you need to to uh, give the students the experience of reading, and that's why you know people, you know, why can't I read the cliff notes and get past the test? Why why don't we teach yeah. literature that way? Why don't we just summarize everything so that they'll have this? They'll know what this great work of literature is about, and everybody instinctively knows that that's completely wrong. But I'm not sure how many people can articulate the answer. And he says, the experience of reading, which is uh, the the meeting of minds, is how I would describe it, and the getting inside someone else's head and the the empathic connection that is made mm-hmm. through that which the summary cannot do for you anyway no, i would so, say but i could, it, it sounds, you don't yeah, do that at all you don't have tests no tests at all right because um maybe maybe assign an essay or have them sit down and um absolutely like everything. they're writing they're gonna they're gonna yeah. do some writing right? although essays and then, and then, not like let's say when you're anyway. d- defending your dissertation and you you stand in front of a panel and you just answer questions. To me, that's a pretty legitimate way to test sure. someone. Sure. Unfortunately, you have to. You know, um, it, the nice thing about tests is you can. Oh, they got they got twenty three out of twenty five questions correct. Therefore, they get a ninety two percent. You know. I want my doctor to be right every time. Well, and I don't think I don't think that that happens by testing. I think it happens by uh, actually being in a hospital and seeing doctors do their jobs. So right. I'm not so worried about that's uh, that's the good news is doctors actually do that, right? 
And I think that that's if you want to work, if you want to have an essay test, what you do is you have them write an article for the magazine, right? So yeah. I don't know why I, I I teach a hell of a lot of essays. I I personally like essays, but mm-hmm. we're teaching it to all sorts of kids who shouldn't have any essays being taught to them because, as in, like they shouldn't be learning to write them because they're you not dropped gonna, out there. You dropped out there. Could you back? Sorry, up? you. T- I was just uh, yeah. saying that we're obsessed with essays in school because it's a way of testing like writing skill. Mm-hmm. But uh, the, everybody games the system and all essays end up being terrible and therefore all writing ends up being terrible. Well, so well, what we should do is not make essays be like a, you know, why are we trying to get kids to prove arguments that they're not interested in? So yeah, I say, yeah, yeah, yeah. what we do. Um, here's a game you love playing or a movie you just finished watching convince me that it's a good movie. And then when they write their first essay, it's terrible. And I say, here's six reasons why this is terrible. And I point them out. Mm-hmm. Right. One, first of all, you haven't told me anything about it. Yeah. Right? So, oh, spoilers. Well, this is another thing. Right? I'm obsessed with people talking about the word spoilers. Listen, the big problem for almost any media for me is I'm not going to read it or be interested in it. So get me interested in it. You were railing against. For you. I don't want to spoil it for you. They say I'm not going to read it unless you make it interesting to me. Do you understand? Yeah. But it'll be spoiled. It won't be spoiled. <laughs> I won't. You were read ranting it. about yeah. this in a in a podcast I was listening yeah. to recently. So this well, is a recurring thing. Okay, you you can see though why education works the way it is. Number one, it's testing is easier. Number oh, two, yes. it has a kind of objectivity which i was alluding to when i said 23 out of 25 points yeah sure. so so when the kid or the kid's parent inevitably comes to complain you yep. just make your appeal to you, it's science yep. it's you numbers, the numbers you, know? you say look yeah yep. um, so that ultimately the problem is not the teachers well i would it's, say ultimately it's, the problem is it's like blaming the actors for anxiety. hollywood movies it's you don't blame point. the actors for shitty Hollywood movies. You blame the audience yep. because the audience is the one demanding shitty movies. Oh, yeah. Well, but the 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 it's the status anxiety and the social climbing. I want this credential so I can get this job, which mm-hmm. will pay me well and give me the status in society I want, which is um education then becomes this transactional and functional thing rather than the cultivation of minds and you and i uh are in our own ways uh re- rebels from that but unfortunately there just aren't enough people who are willing to rebel this has been the SFF audio podcast Please join us at www.sffaudio.com.